I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ethan Warren. And we love to watch. We love to watch thinks this movie needs more yee-haw and less Pete yawn. More yee-haw and less Pete yawn. just repurposing text to me now is the titles of her no one knows that i've already workshopped this joke (laughs) until you say that out loud 33 66 percent of the people on this podcast know that i don't think no one knows that peter i'm saying specifically you're no one oh okay (laughs) well that's a feeling i'm used to uh Well, with that, who are let's, you, Aaron? Yeah, welcome to We Love to Watch. We already said it. We already did intros, but this is We Love to Watch. We're a movie podcast <laughs> going through some things. Uh, and uh, normally we're just a, a happy go lucky movie podcast that uh, picks a theme and does movies over the course of that month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and, and contrast. And we're in our last week, our Thanksgiving special of, uh, of We Love to Watch. Uh, where we are doing Disney back in the action, which is uh, chronicling the very quick re-rise and re-fall of Disney's original live action efforts. And we decided to focus specifically on um, Disney attempting to kind of do family-friendly action adventure movies, because that's what kind of, as we talked about in our Honey, I Shrunk the Kids episode, kind of re-kicked off this little uh, renaissance. Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was the most successful live-action Disney movie of all time. They tried to replicate its success. Uh, It almost, uh, unlike their other big hit from 1989 that relaunched or uh, revitalized their uh, animation movies, their live-action dominance uh, never really happened and went away very quickly. Uh, And this is kind of – this is really the dearth of them trying to make these kind of action-adventure movies, I think, that that kind of return to their roots – a little bit roots being the 1950s 1960s like big swiss family robinson uh 20,000 leagues under the sea like big family action adventure movies because uh, after this you really get a lot more air buds than you do uh three musketeers until they started just buying other franchises to run um that were live action but we're ending with one that uh I have seen so many times, not because I was a huge fan of it, but my brother, who was seven years younger, used to watch it every single day. Um, And that is A Tall Tale, uh, sometimes subtitles as The Amazing Adventures of Pecos Bill. Uh, And we're joined by, I don't know, like seven or eight time guests. You've been in some, at least one episode that might or might not be canon. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the actual official count is a little tough, uh, but one of our favorite people, Ethan Warren. Ethan, thank you for coming back uh, on the show in a forum where you don't have to pretend you hate either of us. I was I was trying to do the math just before we, we got on here to, to figure out the same thing, and, and it, it is this weird, like, I feel like, what is the sort of, like, DC sort of Marvel different universe <laughs> continuums like you know I, I feel like I exist in several different parallel uh, 
you know, plot lines of this show. So we're we're around seven or eight, depending on uh, how many <laughs> how many bits you're counting. <laughs> yeah, we're basically like these recordings are in a pre-crisis. We love to watch universe, and then some of the recordings that happened before take place in post-crisis. Except my and first it's... episode was the splitting of the timelines. Like I I came on and created the crisis. <laughs> yeah, time moves backwards for you as a character on our show. I see. Okay, well, that's appropriate given that this takes place in 19... No, no, it's... No. Ethan, I told you. It's it's 1905. Oh, it's 1905 and it takes place in America. <laughs> I love that it says American West. Pick a location. Like, pick a state. The idea that they're like, I don't know, the West? Like, where? where's their definition of of the West? I mean, um, like, didn't Deadwood take place in the Dakotas? Like, this could be any, this movie could be anywhere. Which theoretically could be perfectly appropriate for a tall tale sort of mythic setting. But like so many elements, this movie is sort of stranded in between real yeah. and mythic. Like, say Montana. I mean, there's a big fucking mountain that they live under. So it's not Kansas. <laughs> Like you have to, you have to at least narrow, you can, you've already narrowed it down based on locale to uh, a Rocky Mountain state. So just name one. Um, no one is going to look this up to see if this happened uh, and whether you're, you're factually accurate. Although this did, uh, this probably is better for later on in the podcast, but in case we don't come back to it, um, this movie, there's a part where they're chased by uh, motorcycle gangs. And I was like, are they? Are you fucking kidding? Like motorcycle gangs in 1905? Uh, like with, with the buggy and everything? Turns out, uh, I did not know this, motorcycles invented in 1867? <laughs> did anyone we're, know? Th- did you know that? <laughs> when we're like, uh, when we're like uh, tough guys where, that, uh, that, you know, ride around in motorcycles though invented. Like when was that? That cultural moment I don't think happened yeah. for another uh, 20, 20, 30 years, right? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 these rebels very much had causes until, uh, in, until at least the 30s. Yeah, they had causes like um, keeping the baseball league segregated and uh, <laughs> gathering all of their friends at a rally to, to spread Spanish flu. <laughs> um, yeah, but mo- I, like, why did it take them so long to be like, what if we, what if we uh, combine the concept of the motorcycle and the stagecoach? Like, took them like 30 more years to figure that shit out? That seems perplexing. You're doing like the cinema sins for American history right now. <laughs> ding, ding. Fig- figure out cars quicker. Uh, well, I mean, if I had to venture a guess, um, it was because it took them long enough to find a, a piece of metal that could hold two motorcycles together. Um, and then they were like, wait a minute. Instead of having two motorcycles, let's just build a horseless <laughs> carriage. Um, I'm also going to ding American history when a car finally emerges because it's uh, Deus Ex Machina. Uh, <laughs> Wait, Juan, if a horse, if a car is a horseless carriage, would a motorcycle be a horseless ho- horse? <laughs> I think it's an ostrichlish. Yes. <laughs> ostrichlish. Try to say ostrichless. It's difficult. Um, less. Nobody uh, ever does even. I know. <laughs> it I'm would try, be I'm trying my best to do such a thing. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't do it. 
Uh, sure. Uh, so Ethan, though, if you haven't heard any of his many appearances, he's one of our most prolific guests um, uh, who has produced uh, some wonderful uh, writing, films, a lot of stuff that uh, I think Peter and I both consume with regular frequency. So it's always exciting to talk to you, our goofy buddy who fucks around with Marcus Jones uh, or and sometimes with him, sometimes at him. Um, and also someone who we really uh, respect as a someone who gives a critical eye to films and uh, as, as our way to continue to, I don't know, give you a backhanded compliments. We brought you in to analyze Tall Tale. Uh, but <laughs> Ethan, if they don't know, uh, if our audience doesn't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself and, and where they can find some of your writing? Uh, well, I am uh, a senior editor with Brightwall Darkroom, which is an online film journal um, that is devoted to. Uh, as we call it, a different lens on film, sort of the intersection between movies and the business of being alive. Um, and for the last few years, I have been publishing essays, uh, sometimes very long ones, just about monthly. But these days I am publishing less frequently because I'm also working on a book uh, about Paul Thomas Anderson, my favorite director for uh, Columbia University Press, which will hopefully be coming out, uh, if I had to guess, I would say probably 2022. Um, but, you know, chugging along on that. What chapter are you on? I am just getting started on chapter two. Great. <laughs> but there's a there's quite a significant introduction, so we'll call it chapter three. <laughs> I get really excited when I see the, the scroll bar on the side of one of Ethan's pieces. It's just this tiny, yeah. tiny <laughs> little button. Um because then it means I get to like sit in and have a, a, a fucking feast um, and it gets to have like sort of a secondary experience after the movie, right? Like it, it's not just like a quick little, oh, that's a that's an interesting thought. That's something for me to chew on instead of like, oh, he chewed on it for us. Yeah, not to always kiss your ass so bad when you come here, Ethan, but you are one of the few writers who I will uh, read an article and then continually click on your author um, author uh, link to see like is there any I've missed in here because I really want to make sure they're like Pokemon and I catch them uh, catch them all and last time you were on our show for the Thanksgiving special which is just accidental that you're on a, again for it uh, you did uh, you we asked you on to be on Muppet Christmas Carol and you wrote an amazing essay that got I think a lot of traction I think uh, Gilma del Toro um, re, like retweeted your article so I expect the piece that follows this movie, I don't know. You'll probably get like a postcard from Steven Spielberg. Probably. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro retweeted my uh, Muppet Christmas Carol piece, which was very much inspired by by doing that episode of this show. And it got picked up by all kinds of news outlets. Like I was just looking back at those screenshots today. It was like Guillermo del Toro has declared Muppet Christmas Carol is the best Christmas Carol. And then you click on the news story and it's just an image of him retweeting <laughs> my piece. And that is this, that is media journalism in the year 2019, at least. And everything is clearly turned around in 2020. As we can see, things are on the, things are on the upswing. <laughs> uh, they're, they're either on the upswing the, well, the advantage of recording this in September, as we've been saying all month. It's e it's either on the upswing or it's on the really, really downswing. 
long silence of a horrible bonding. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, but yes, so uh, what did we bring you back for? Uh, I, I, sometimes we bring you back for silly things. Sometimes we bring you back for uh, Muppet Christmas Carol, Guillermo del Toro, uh, endorsed as the best uh, best Christmas Carol adaptation, best Christmas movie, yada, yada. Um, we brought you back to uh, dig up the bones of American folklore um, with Tall Tale. Oof. So... What, uh, what, Aaron, what's your history with this thing? Why, yeah, why, so, why, why'd you do this to me? So, yeah, well, uh, I'm gonna, it's I'm gonna make a movie podcast, by the way. Look, just to clarify. I'm gonna maintain it's better than The Three Musketeers, and if I have to defend it, why I feel that way, um, I will, although it will be only possibly interesting to myself and Peter. Because uh, I expect – so the way I – I saw all these in theaters, every single one that we did this month. And I uh, loved or really liked all of them at various points. Um, and as – Peter, as you and I have talked about, like I do find this arc of Disney uh, just very interesting. I think I think they're like I, – I would love to do some sort of uh, – if I was at all a writer, uh, some sort of like a deep dive into kind of – into the history of Disney's like live action efforts. I think so many great documentaries and um, books have been written specifically about like Walt Disney as it relates to their animation studios or their, their theme parks or a lot of like business decisions and turmoil and a lot of things that they did. I feel like the part of their story that always gets a short shrift is, uh, is live action um until you know they they those those movies never quite competed at the same scale as their their animation movies and uh they it, but if you like were uh like myself as a kid and basically was very limited as to what movies I could rent like if if the old Disney live action they all were in the same cases they were in those clamshells they were white cases. They had a the little red line and they had names like Toby Tyler. And then you'd rent it and you'd be like, how is this a fucking movie? And, and, but that was like, and, but I feel like that, um, cycle, that recurrence of like, they'd have a few big hits. They do a bunch of what the fuck are these movies? They'd kind of go off into weird experiments and then kind of end up with a hit and, and repeat the cycle over and over. It really is, um, not to use a, a trope. But Peter and I say a lot, uh, I think Disney live action movies from basically like the 50s through the 90s is like the dark souls of movie making. Um, Can I just bust but, in for one second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I was describing to my wife the other day what this month was on We Love to Watch, I described it as I said, it's they're, they're doing white clamshell movies. Because that is so yeah. very much how I remember those VHS boxes of my childhood. They had those those great white clamshells. I can feel sort of the the tactile yep. memory of those videos in my hand. Oh and they, yeah, oh and yeah. they they would get like memory. brown on the edges, right? Because white does not sit well in a dusty video store. <laughs> so they would they would get pretty gross pretty quickly. Yeah, the, the the image I have of this is <clears throat> massive, like uh, shelving unit, um, like oak shelving unit, right? 
with uh, a, a what now is a tiny TV, but at the time we considered massive. Uh, wow. And then a, uh, a shelf, shelf right underneath the TV that just has a hundred of these clamshells just strewn in uh, you know, <laughs> non-tidy, yeah. non-tidy yeah. stacks. Like that's, I, I picture this kind of movie and that image comes to mind. The clamshells just being like tossed into a bucket and it's like basically like, all right, well, I'm going to go sleep over at my friend's house for two days. What the fuck are we going to do on, you know, <laughs> on the end of day one? Um, and we're yeah. going to dig through their stack of clamshells, right? Like, that's that's got to happen. Yeah, and um, and that's why, like, I think that's been captured a lot recently in the culture as, like, Disney Plus was coming to the market and you had both, like, Disney Plus um, – retweeting every movie that was going to be available on Disney Plus and people discovering hilariously in real time uh, and on Twitter together of like what some of the weird fucking live action movies that Disney has made uh, has made through the years and competing with a list of all the live action movies that aren't on Disney Plus that are like, like, where are these dinosaur bones and this weird, like, Hawkman superhero movie they did in the 80s. And, like, that list goes on and on, too. So I just find, like, as they are, like, basically helping to shape some some aspects of television, definitely animation, definitely the concept of, like, a multimedia uh, empire as a like a as a movie studio they had these live action spurts and sometimes they had these little bouts of success and then they just kept trailing off it's not as it's not as clean of a story as i think the rest of their uh oh, the rest of their uh animation stuff that has like clear rises and falls throughout um throughout the 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 decades so so yeah so this was like a chance to kind of like kit in that disney era of like rebirth and then fall that i was um intimately involved in like again saw all these in theaters and i think tall tale was one that um so i i loved three musketeers i loved rocketeer i loved um Honey, I Shrunk the Kids when I saw them all in theaters. I was six, eight, and ten, respectively. Now Tall Tale comes out. There seem to be running out of ideas. Stuff like The Three Musketeers, some stuff like stuff that comes out in 94. Some things we've talked about, like heavyweights, just aren't as big a success. Uh, they don't have any more Mighty Ducks or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids that are upcoming anytime soon. They're really kind of, you know, we're like a year away from the big green, which is what if we remake the Mighty Ducks, but soccer? I don't know. We are out of ideas. Um, and they released Tall Tale, which is like their last big attempt at like a dramatic um, action adventure movie. They spent $35 million on the budget, which is about their budget for big budget live action movies at the time. It's what Three Musketeers got. It's what Rocketeer got. Um, this movie is uh, just an incredible flop. It makes $11 million. And then me as an audience member, I'm 12 years old. This isn't a movie for 12 year olds anymore. Like I liked it in the sense that I was like, got to go to a movie and was entertained and I just didn't have that same sense of like, oh, fuck this. I'm going to ex- you know, excoriate this on Letterboxd later tonight. But I had no thought about watching it again. I don't think I ever rented it. We did end up purchasing it. And like I said, my seven-year-old brother fell in love with it, which seems about right. 
But uh, yeah, I was I was on to like give me the Jurassic Parks, give me the Congos. I guess in 1995 would be more accurate. But um, so yeah, so Peter, it's not meant as a punishment towards you. It really is. A, I think this is the end of this little section of Disney's live action story where they were no longer breaking even or having mild successes at these attempts to have somewhat hipper historical big action adventure movies but we're now basically like making 33 percent of their budget back and as such they pivoted and this type of movie went away for i think ever i don't think they ever really returned to this sort of live action movie so that's a lot of setup of a story we've kind of been telling this month um so peter i know you've Never seen this before. I kind of know your thoughts aren't great. Ethan did tell us when he picked this uh, a little bit of his history, but I have forgotten. So I'm excited. And obviously, our audience doesn't know one way or the other. Um, so, Ethan, what? Why did you pick this? Uh, and do you have you seen this before? So I, I very much have seen this before. This was a movie that I, I really loved growing up. Um, I went and saw this in the theater. With my mom and my sister, I would have been nine, uh, just about okay. when this came out. Um, and I, it's it is a distinct memory for me because it is uh, one of the very few times in my whole life that I have uh, we we were the only ones in the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking back on it now. I, I can think of three. It's, it's funny. I can't even imagine this movie being in a movie theater. It, it feels distinctly like it needs to be on a CRTV. <laughs> I can think of three other examples. This joins the ranks of uh, Blue is the Warmest Color, uh, Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson biopic, and <laughs> and this year's uh, Downhill, the, the remake of uh, Force Majeure, uh, and Tall Tale, and the four movies that I can think of off the top of my head that I've ever Yeah, read. write an article about the, uh, how those four movies the, are related. The, yes, the, the quadrilogy <laughs> of movies that I watched all alone in the theater. And... Um, I mentioned that to my my daughter, who is three, when I mentioned I was going to be doing this episode. And she said, well, how did that happen? And I said, I have no idea. And then I checked the box office and said, oh, now I now yeah. I understand. Well, it seems to be some clear evidence for why. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I, I probably if we weren't alone in the theater, we probably was like one other one other person who had free. And also my dad had a free pass to movies. So uh, if we were alone in a theater, it means the movie made no money that day. I also I want to shout out the person I saw on Letterboxd as I was looking last night at uh, reviews of this movie who said, I, I won the opportunity to see this movie out of some contest between me and my sister, but my dad was too slow to take me and then it was out of theaters. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you a question, Ethan, uh, before we go a little more in your history. Did you... Did you watch this with your either of your kids? I didn't. It's it's a little too intense for my daughter. Um, my daughter is three. My son is one. She's about to be four. He's about to be two. Um, and it's just she, my daughter is in that zone where, like, you know, if things get a little bit tense, she really has to be yeah. coached through it. And this, uh, I believe, as it says in the little corner of the screen, when you queue it up, uh, it says, you know, it, it is rated PG for Wild West violence, which is <laughs> very much not what she would be here for. And this is... Yeah, because it takes place in West, yes, 1905. 
I, it's funny because like what, what image does that what horrific image does that conjure in your head like i know i know like once you realize it's a disney film i'm thinking of you know guys just firing guns off you know it might be scary to kids but you know nothing nothing too uh too too graphic um a guy's finger gets blown off in this movie in like the first yeah, act that's that's the main protagonists or heroes superpower is shooting off fingers. Yes. Um, I did watch this with Maya, who is six, and she is actually we've talked about on the show like incredibly way more than I was. Like she has yet to be scared by a movie and wants to watch scary movies. And I keep trying to stay within a boundary that will satisfy what she's looking for uh, without uh, ruining my life with her no longer being able to sleep or something like that. Um, so, I mean, we, we just watched Pacific Rim recently, and she she loved that quite a bit. Um, so I wasn't worried about violence for her specifically uh, in this movie. She can handle wild, wild action. Um, it was a mistake to watch it with her, and I mean this with all the love in the world for my daughter, uh, because she doesn't know who any of these fucking people are, and I don't blame her. I've never shared it. I doubt it came up in kindergarten or preschool. And so the entire movie was uh, understandably getting asked for any context about what was happening. Um, and then every answer was met with, again, understandably more questions. <laughs> so I would not show like, in, unless you're like, hey, before we watch this movie, I'm going to read you a few books, a few cultural criticisms of American folklore, uh, and then we'll watch Tall Tale. Uh, because if not, there, there's just, who the fuck, what is all this? Is an understandable question. Well, it's interesting you say that because my daughter would be very familiar. We have uh, these, these, um, retellings of of these stories um by Stephen Kellogg that I grew up okay. on and that I then bought when I had kids um so she reads the stories of of Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill all the time um interesting and and so I that is that probably informs my warm memories of this too because you know these were these were stories that I really liked growing up and it is surprising to me and we can get into it later to then revisit this and see how kind of deliberately small <laughs> it makes them like yeah i actually want to park there because that was kind of the big thing i wanted to talk about pre-movie because i i think part of my kind of shrug at this movie was that i never had any connection to um, American like folklore folk heroes which may explain why like I have definitely repurchased a lot of my favorite books from childhood to read to my kids uh, and like that I haven't heard of that version but um, I definitely haven't prioritized uh, Paul Bunyan or Pecos Bill uh, I do remember like getting taught about them in school as American folklore in elementary school and the only one that ever really appealed to me was and we talked about a little bit about that at the end of last week's episode was was Paul Bunyan, but I think that was more I liked the idea of of a giant like a kaiju type lumberjack <laughs> like that just appealed to me as a oh yeah no it's a fucking giant with an axe I'd buy that action figure. We're like, Pecos Bill and John Henry and Johnny Appleseed. Like I, I heard about Johnny Appleseed so much and I. I even as a kid, I was kind of like, you just threw seeds around <laughs> and planted trees. This this does not seem 
all that interesting to me. Um, and I, and also like, I just, um, and again, I, I, I don't want to sound like I was like a woke kid. I wasn't, but one area that like my dad was, think was in, in some way super suspicious of, and like very vocally. So as a, as a kid to me, was like in uh, America's folklore and the kind of idea of like, uh, manifest destiny and a lot of those things so I was the weird kid in elementary school who like as they were teaching us all this stuff I was like raising my hand about like uh, well wasn't Columbus a murderer and like you know like all that kind of stuff um, he, that suspicion eventually turned on him and now like he's suspicious of like whether COVID's real but um, at the time it was a healthy suspicion of like faux American history that we used to tell ourselves so I think like the combination of like these stories that were very clearly designed to make me feel a sense of patriotism that I just didn't have at that age combined with the fact that their stories in some ways are um, at least at least the way they're explained to me like I've read actually a lot in, in come in the week leading up to this episode about like the way that John Henry is viewed in the African American community, and like obviously that's not the version I got by watching the Disney cartoon that they showed for five minutes in school or whatever. But like the versions that were told to me just kind of felt a lot like oh, okay, so he rides a tornado and this guy, um, you know, throws seeds and this guy. Uh, put a railroad railroad spike in quicker like those the for america and to prove that we could tame the west and that that just didn't appeal to me and and i want to pin in that for later on because i do think like part of the reason i didn't connect much to this movie as a kid or only somewhat connected to it is like this movie is very much about how technology sucks and how uh the idea of taming the quote-unquote American wilderness is uh, is like something uh, something good, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it seemed uh, both as a twelve-year-old who thought uh, that was bad, and also um, I like what twelve-year-old like wants to give up his technology. Like fuck that, I'm not gonna go live on a farm. <laughs> I don't care. What, I don't care what Nick Stahl's doing. Like, uh, you know, the P, the PlayStation comes out next year. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I need to figure out what this bandicoot is up to. Yeah. So, so that's kind of, so that's why I guess maybe this didn't have much of a connection. So to me, but Ethan, it sounds like it was much different for you. Absolutely. And I, I just want to throw out Johnny Appleseed of all of these uh, is, is distinct in being a real person. <laughs> Pecos <laughs> Bill wrote a whirlwind, which is factually inaccurate. Johnny Appleseed scattered uh, apple seeds because that was a real man who did that. Uh, and he, sure. I mean, he did. He got folded into this. Tradition. I mean, Calamity Jane was a real person. Was she? I'd see, I don't know that. A minute. Johnny Appleseed, yeah. John Chapman grew up or was born um, not too far from where I live in the Boston area. So we have certain pride. I've been to his uh, his homestead. So. Lots let of me, let me guess. good apples there. Yeah, good apples. Uh, I I don't know that I had any apples, but um, I did. He would be rolling over in his. I grave have I have a picture <laughs> of my friend uh, Bob trying to pretending to take the apples out of the basket of of the Johnny Appleseed statue because we were cool teenagers taking pictures of messing around with statues at the Johnny Appleseed <laughs> homestead. Um, yeah, I mean, I I grew up loving folklore and myth. Um, 
particularly uh, indigenous um, folklore. Uh, my my grandparents are anthropologists, and I I grew up really um, sort of obsessed with with indigenous folklore and. Then made the leap. I mean, Greek myth, I think, is something that a lot of kids grow up loving too. And and then yeah. I I definitely absorbed American quote unquote folklore into that that sort of personal canon um, of stories that I loved. And I I've been kind of in the past week or so kind of trying to look back at like what was it that was resonating for me with these stories. And the more I've looked into it, the more the sort of history of the tall tale and American folklore as a concept is very sort of strange and full of contradictions um, that are really interesting and got me fired up to go into this movie and see none of it really <laughs> explored. <laughs> but um, but he tells about that pancake story. Yes. Though. I read an article. The, the National Council of Teachers of English published in 1969 uh, about the idea that, that these guys are not folklore, they are fake lore. And that American folklore got stranded in this kind of weird developmental spot where we didn't really need a folklore the way that um, other cultures did, because like we know where the Grand Canyon came from. We know that it wasn't because Paul Bunyan got tired and dragged his axe across the desert. Um, yeah. But... It, it represents some need to have a national mythos. Mm -hmm. um, but then, meanwhile, so it's, it's, it's very synthetic. It is created. Um, Paul Bunyan was created to, like, sell uh, axes and sell, sell lumbering equipment. Um, but it was... When it was made clear that American folklore was fake and synthetic, people would reject it. And so it needed to be presented as organic. And I, I discovered the the failed uh, precedent for Pecos Bill uh, during all this research, which was a character named Caleb Catlam. Have you heard of this this name? I, I have not. No, <laughs> I don't know which name is better. So to be I, I read this this article from this is a whole different article uh, called Let's see, Pecos Bill and Appraisal, which was published in the uh, Western State Folklore Society in 1952, and it said, uh, Let's see, <laughs> the complete failure of Caleb Catlam to win popular approval when presented forthrightly as a literary creation would seem to confirm the general opinion that the reading public wants to believe in a sound folk basis for its tall tale heroes. And so there was a, there was a book published in 1936 called deep breath, Caleb Catlam's America, the enlivening wonders of his adventures, voyages, discoveries, loves, hoaxes, bombast, and rigmaroles in all parts of America from his birth in 1798, almost to the present year, told by himself, together with a surprising account of his family from Eric the Red Catlam's discovery of America to their vanishment in the country of the Great Cave, including the tale of the men sought up for firewood, the rape of the temperate zone, and a thousand tricks of lovemake. <laughs> That's the title? That's the title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and like, uh, and it was that's a like, that's a uh, assassination of Jesse James by the Robert Coward for uh, Robert the coward Robert Ford 
um, by the Robert Coward Ford is pretty funny too. Uh, it's it's uh it's that times three, I think. Correct. I don't know. That sounds more like adult Wilcox. Like you must buy your horse as much jewelry as you buy your wife, <laughs> and other poems and humorous observations, a story of life on the range, or whatever that <laughs> book title is. So this book was published in 1936, and I guess the American public was just like, no, thank you. And then a few years later, another guy comes along and goes, well, this is the story of Pecos Bill, who I for sure have heard all around the chuck wagon from the great old cowboys. And people were like, oh, yes, please tell me what the cowboys, you know, tell me about the the myth and the folklore of the cowboys. And Pecos Bill is no more real than poor Caleb Catlam, who in a sliding doors scenario, we would be watching, I guess, Patrick Swayze play in the 90s. (laughs) And pardon me, I've got a... uh... (laughs) You know, poor Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> you say something about Texas, Caleb Cattley or whatever <laughs> is the name you said. So all of all of this is to say, I find something very weird and compelling about the idea of, of American fake lore, folklore, which as as this other article that I was reading pointed out, like America developed so fast that our, our folklore got stranded in this weird spot where you know we never we never had the need for a great epic the way that that previous uh you know ancient cultures had and so we just end up yeah. with this weird series of sort of goof em ups as our version <laughs> of of mythos and and well cuz theoretically like our our like big mythos is in its in our actual history right like you don't get much more like cinematic or um storytelling than like the concept of what actually happened in the uh, american revolution at least like with all the edges you know the the story version right like yeah that'll happen it's a good it's a good story like you don't need two twins getting nursed by a wolf right like you just go oh we told that king go fuck yourself and then we you know did x y and then we dressed up threw tea over and like you know and it makes sense like it explains a lot the folklore image america has a an issue with being a new nation and not having having um, mythology to tie back to or folklore to tie back to and hence having a sense of national identity to tie back to. So like that's why you, there's this cheesy shit that we, we you see so much and like some of the stuff I've talked about in the show before but like the one thing that makes me cringe the most is like the 1950s style diner even though I've been to many of these places and enjoyed their food um, because they always use this sort of flattened out image of Marilyn Monroe that kind of reduces her to um, a hot lady. Um, And then John Wayne as the ultimate man and like this sort of like 1950s route 66 kind of Americana vibe. James Dean too. throw him in there. That's, that's one that's close to my heart. Yes. Yes. And James Dean where it's like, you're, you're essentially like, um, the only way that his his tragedy as a, a young man who died, you know, in a, a stupid fucking accident, um, the only way that people really connect with his tragedy is in the sort of sadness that these these halcyon days of the 19, the happy days of the 1950s are gone. And in that mm-hmm. other sense, like we Americans need to like keep stacking this like sort of manufactured folklore on top of it. And that's why we have this like image of the cowboy, despite the fact that like our history is not that old. Like we know about all of the atrocities, not all of them. We know about many of the atrocities that the 
the U.S. government fulfilled and that the uh, and, and, and average white citizens of this United States fulfilled. And yet we still like hold on. We cling on to some version of this Wild West myth. And I think it's because folklore is identity. Well, I think part of the problem, too, is that like American history, we're not the only country that this is true of most at some point is true of most Western uh, countries, um, but like or colonial countries. But, um, you know, our history, especially, which is what we as as a nation are still reeling with, like how honest we want to be about telling that history is it's just kind of filled with these things that we've incorporated we we basically like incorporated travesty after travesty into our mythos because if we just talked about it honestly obviously we we haven't been ever really ready to do that uh or at least as a nation as a whole and then we can't just ignore it so unlike um for be- unlike like say journey germany over the last like 70 years who is like both kind of sometimes at different times been in denial about it and like just we just don't talk about it to like grappling with it a little bit we've kind of like just incorporated all of those um atrocities into our mythos as like a good thing so you know you mentioned the civil war peter like the mythos that we tell ourselves in like grade school history essentially boils down to America defeated slavery and the asterisk 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 is uh, caused by America and uh, same thing with like our like what what this movie like what the Pecos Bills of the world are there to kind of mythologize which is the expansion into the untamed America uh, 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 you know American West which is uh, you know seen as this like brave thing when when men were men and like something that is to be uh uh you know uh uh revered which is definitely how it was portrayed throughout most of my like uh childhood through high school history textbooks uh when it was of course actually like the uh a, a people committing genocide across a continent um, over like a 400 year or 300 year period but like we haven't taken that and ignored that we did that instead we've made it like um these positive character traits both as like an individual and a positive character trait of the of the nation we conquered the country we went from coast to coast and like uh how many bodies we left in its wake is a footnote to it and so i I do think also just a lot of American mythology is like, um, you know, you mentioned Paul Bunyan being used to sell more axes, um, which sounds like a drill joke, uh, but I, I get that it's it's true. Um, <laughs> but well, like, um, but um, it's sort of like the the most American thing in the world is like bullshit marketing. And that's always what I think a lot of this American folklore has like seemed to me, um, at least on the on the surface as a child and more so. It's like, yeah, it's just the reason that it sucks is that like it's not there because like some, um, you know, like like the the you mentioned the Roman or the Greek mythology, which definitely has more than its fair share of tragedy, but it's like based on these like you know epic. 
poets creating these like artistic works and American mythology seems as like bullshit and fake and like dreamed up like a marketing gimmick as much as anything else that comes out of America sometimes. So I don't know. I think that's why maybe it just didn't connect with me and also like why watching it today, it feels even more like, yeah, the things you guys want uh, sucks really bad. (laughs) Well, it's, it's that, that Joan Didion quote, that that has become it's a lovely quote that has really sort of become a cliche at this point is we tell ourselves stories in order to live yeah and so i had i was thinking you know what is the if we tell ourselves these stories in order to live what is the purpose of these stories and it it is to instill i think a sense of of national pride national spirit but to go back to this uh this article from 1969 about american fake lore they say um you know that that typically mythic epics are created for totalitarian conquest but in america the purpose that we needed them for was capitalistic gain mm-hmm. and you know paul bunyan is is also interesting because apparently he is is as opposed to pagos bill who was just created and then lied about there there is some version of paul bunyan that was sort of mixing around there in the old logging camps, you know, the extent to which he resembles the version that we now have is, I think, up for debate. But then you you think about Paul Bunyan as he appears in Fargo, uh, the Coen Brothers movie, It um, that that statue is just looming above everything <laughs> throughout that whole movie. And I, and I love that image, how he does sort of function as this homespun deity throughout that movie who is who is sort of silently judging all of the pathetic ugly little sort of squabbles and and selfishnesses uh the <laughs> he could make a letterbox list that occurs to me now of of uh william h macy uh getting into capitalist scrapes <laughs> while being implicitly judged by paul bunyan including fargo <laughs> and tall tale <laughs> god damn it that's good yeah that's really good but i I think there is something a little bit more mythic about paul bunyan and and maybe it does somehow uh come back to the fact that he did emerge more organically rather than pecos bill who was literally a a branded character who very quickly then became the subject of a disney cartoon every article that i read from the sort of 50s and 60s was like and and now Pecos Bill has been enshrined by the Disney cartoon, which was included in Melody Time, a movie from the 40s that I did watch with my kids on Disney+. Plus. Uh, yeah, and, that's, well, this, and not- that's how I saw the shorts. I mean, I think that's how I was first made it familiar. I don't know if I saw Melody Time, but it was at the time where all those like Disney shorts were chopped up and resold, and they actually did like... They actually did an American Legends one in 2000 where they like did... They, they pieced together their... Um, Johnny Appleseed, Pecos Bill, Paul Bunyan, and then created one for John Henry, because uh, that somehow was not included when they were making those in the fifties. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a uh, it, that is something that's a specific this sort of era is something that's a specific fashion fascination of uh, the Disney creative heads, right? Like yeah. when this movie ended on Disney Plus, they suggested I watch the Davy Crockett movie that they made in the fifties. And then I kind of went down a, a rabbit hole and noticed, yeah, that they, they had adapted all sorts of American folklore for a specific audience when Disney was making those live action movies in a previous. Oh era. yeah. 
The difference is there's something very um, of the era about Disney making a, uh, you know, David Crockett movie in the 50s. Um, there's something Two, he very also outdated fights. about them making Tall Tale in the 1990s. They, uh, they remade uh, or they made a sequel to David Crockett um, called David Crockett and the River Pirates, Peter, which I don't know if it's on Disney Plus, but... Um, it's not good. I mean, the, <laughs> the other one's probably not all that good either. But yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, we talked about this early. Like, we talked about this a lot with Three Musketeers. That, like, Disney just tried to recapture their, like, 60s era action-adventure credentials. So they, like, um, they remade classic uh, literature. They uh, did a great job with it with White Fang. Failed miserably by trying to make a hip and uh, – a 90s hip and edgy – uh, Three Musketeers. Um, they went to like big uh, superhero type stuff, which, you know, is like that Hawkman movie and a few other like movies they made in the 60s and 70s were like, we're going to introduce these kind of like superhero type movies. And then this, you're right, like really just follows that lineage of, uh, yeah, let's let's hit the American West. Um, and they instead of, um, yeah, doing like a Davy Crockett story. Um, they, uh, with the dad from, uh, Old Yeller, uh, as Davy Crockett, um, they decided to be like, what if we kind of also still do superheroes and make this a weird, like, Avengers team up of, like, American propaganda? And I think that is what was so exciting to me about it as a kid was it, it was yeah. literally just the, the Avengers thing of, like, Pagos Bill and Paul Bunyan together on the screen at last. But also, let's let's not commit any kind of Tom and Huck erasure, if 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 you please, because I'm I'm looking at the timeline here of Disney, and and Tom and Huck I think is more Tom and Huck is the end point of of this run because that is December of '95, and so you've got your two big sort of Americana attempts. One is your superhero version, and one is your home improvement kid version with uh, well, JTT as as Tom Sawyer. <laughs> oh, we've talked about JTT this month. Um, actually, though, uh, on the timeline, you'll notice, I actually think Tom and Huck is, a, is an attempt to replicate their better version of this from, I think it was 93. Uh, the, the Elijah which Wood is, Huck Finn. Yeah, which, again, I have no idea how any, how it holds up. But that was them trying, like White Fang, right? Like, it was them, like, let's just make these, these 60s movies with, with, with newer stars, but we're, we're not going to try to add any sort of, like, 90s edge to it. We're going to go straight over the plate. And those movies were both financially more successful uh, and, and just better movies. And then they tried to kind of do it again with, like, okay, well, now we'll do Three Musketeers, but it's going to be super, like, 90s. We're going to do explosions and have, like, Charlie Sheen and Chris O'Donnell as the cast. And we're going to add some, like – weird ninja stuff in there and gadgets and we're basically going to try to remake as we said Robin Hood Prince of Thieves and then Tom and Huck was like the hip and edgy like um, I don't know I remember the previews still very clear like the t the original bad boys <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was Brad Renfro and JTT like trading barbs and stuff like that so they're not going to paint that fence yeah I'm sure I'm sure like um he, he traded some pogs or something in that version. Uh, I saw that in theaters too. But yeah, I mean, I, th 
like there is almost not one of these 90s live action uh disney movies not even just in the action adventure genre but in like we we kind of laid out earlier on that it's like they basically went four categories like pets sports family comedies and um a- action adventure stuff um there's all there's most of these are i saw in theaters or rented or have very clear memories like if we were doing a let's go through my childhood podcast it would be about these types of movies and i would be down at some point over the duration of this podcast when we're 60 still like circling back and doing uh tom and huck uh, at some point but um yeah they're they really like tried to to kind of replicate their like templates for live action movies just in the 90s it it, is, it truly is fascinating maybe only to me well, and the two things that happen almost simultaneously as I look at this master Disney timeline is Tom and Huck comes out one month exactly after a movie called Toy Story, which I think did well. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's not familiar, but, you know, I'd have to go to box office. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, I've heard camp. of it. I've heard. I, I, I feel like people are more familiar with what came after that, like Toy Story 2. But is you that know. is that based on Toy Story? Uh, yeah, Toy Story is a prequel. That's fascinating. All right, I'll check it out. Which which one? <laughs> all of them. I've never heard of any of these. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, they're all pretty good. I'm not gonna like they're they're good. The weird. I mean, Disney Plus dragged out the weirdest stuff from their back catalog. Well, because their back catalog is fucking weird as shit. Like, I cannot emphasize this. You're right. Because like then they they did uh, they were still doing the Disney. Like this is this is the '95. I really think is that turning point. You're 100 on right. Toy Story, but also after the failure of a lot of their old template, it's when they first start dipping their toe into let's remake our animated classics. And you have like the 101 Dalmatian remake, and you have that darn cat remake. And then they're like, we're out of sports ideas. What if we do Air Bud and the Big Green? Like it gets. I think it gets wild in a way that's more funny to make fun of. To kind of circle back to what Peter said at the beginning, um, and then I think we get into the movie. But yeah, as like a as a circle on this or a bow on this, like I think the la- the back half of the '90s is where things get super wild and like has a ton of movies that you could do as a bad movie podcast. And then you want to you want to um, close it out with the the last live action movie, uh last live action Disney movie of the 90s on this list. Uh they they put out a David Lynch movie. Oh yeah, straight story. October 15th, 1999, closing out the millennium for Disney yeah. with David Lynch's The Straight Story. <laughs> It's a a great movie. It doesn't really fall into any of this. It's the most beautiful, weird, and weirdest, most beautiful movie ever made. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, like, I actually think, like, the first half of the 90s is really Disney trying to make good like, I don't I don't want to say it's not like they were trying to make bad movies, but I think they were, like, trying to add to as much as any movies do, like, an artistic canon. Like, they were trying to um, we're going to adapt classic literature and give old-fashioned American adventures and, like, they wanted to recapture that that Disney magic that they had done in Little Mermaid. Like, Little Mermaid to Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin is, like, better animation and some, fan, like, amazing songwriting. Um, 
and a lot more of that Broadway panache. But like, it's clearly they're they're recapturing a magic and a lineage that goes back to Snow White and Cinderella and uh, Sleeping Beauty and that kind of stuff. And they tried to do it in live action. It feels like they gave up halfway through the decade, and then they got super weird and wild to even uh, for the most part less success. Well, another uh, and then they gave up. Another thing that maybe you guys have talked about already is the other thing from this era that I remember so distinctly is. Uh, the Wonderful World of Disney. Have you talked about this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that does all coincide. It was this this time when, you know, you could still have Michael Eisner walk out on whatever a Friday night and be like, hey, I'm Michael Eisner. And you know what we all love about Disney is like classical old values. Yeah. And well, and they bought ABC in, I think, 96, I want to say. Sounds good to me. Um, but then it, it does kind of mash up against that 90s culture of self-awareness yeah. that they kind of can't help giving into. And, and those those don't really mesh so easily. And, and it even, you know, it, it that sort of self-awareness just is is such a um, sort of viral thing that, that even I was watching Frozen last night with my kids um and i i i have you know my my uh almost four-year-old is impressively uh judicious with her frozen watching so i'm not like over familiar with it <laughs> the way a lot of i'm sure parents are <laughs> but it's this like beautiful classic story and then like something happens and the the guy goes well that happened and it's like ah jesus <laughs> like this is you know you're you're just yeah if, dating it even in the quality films like toy story has comments like that oh toy story like is the, made of comments like that i mean that's that that yeah, is it's yeah. such a sea change moment i think that way but in films like toy story and monsters inc that actually that sort of self-awareness makes those films bulletproof and makes them less laughable um, whereas yeah. it sinks like the imitators, right? Um, particularly the Drake and imitators. And uh, what's interesting about this this era is like Aaron. I think the easy the, an easy reason for why you think that this was the era when they were trying to build a, a a quality catalog of work is because they were putting money behind these movies. They had yeah. actual production value. This one um, shot by Yanush Kaminsky. Yes, yes. Like this one, this one is a little bit more sparse than Three Musketeers, but like both of them have big. I don't know. Sets. The location shooting is pretty amazing. Like it, this movie still costs the same as Three Musketeers. Yeah, but I'm saying because of the inherent quality of the fact that it's a western, it doesn't yeah. show its budget the way Three Musketeers does. But Three Musketeers has these massive castle castle yeah. locations and castle sets and like, you know, people swinging through the air and such that, you know, just really isn't kind of part of the, you know, western catalog as much. But that yeah. doesn't mean that uh, this movie, like this movie has fucking production value it looks as it looks as good as a you know a, a, any sort of 90s standard kind of you know not 90s it looks as good as any sort of like uh you know outdoorsy western from uh you know the the, the post new hollywood era looks right um they yeah. capture the mountains beautifully there's a sense of adventure yada yada um the, my, my problems in it more are, are uh, of the dramatic and the performance side uh not with the production value <laughs> like this does not feel like a cheapo like <laughs> this this is a uh, very very far away from uh the roger corman fantastic four movie right yeah i mean that was even as a kid and ethan you probably remember this too from this time like there was a 
seeing a Walt Disney logo before a preview or before a movie, it did feel like a mark of quality. And as a kid, sometimes you think like that quality ends up circling in your head and you're like, oh, this means good. It doesn't necessarily mean good, but like, yeah, it does mean it's going to be have uh, good actors in it for the most part, give or take a Chris O'Donnell and Three Musketeers. It's going to have, you know, gorgeous sets or good location. Those things that as a kid, you don't really put words on but like you just know when it feels like a like a movie in the way that movies are supposed to feel and then like you go see something like gorky or whatever and you're like what the fuck is this even or the great panda adventure or some of those other like uh family movies that were released in the same era and you're just like what is this even as a kid you're like well i'm glad i'm not like at church but i don't know what this um i'm Um, googling it it is Gorky a thing? Yeah, Gorky came out uh, the year before Babe, and it's why I didn't want to see Babe because I'm like I've seen Gorky. Um, yeah, Gorky was not a pig that could talk or had magic powers. It was just a pig. I, I, I hate to tell you, thing. but how are you spelling Gorky? Because I'm looking at IMDb and I'm not seeing anything. I'm pretty sure it's Gordy. 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 I remember Gordy. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what Gordy's deal was, but I remember it like, oh no, same year as Babe. It came out before Babe. And I remember then like, you know, six months later or whatever, like going to see Babe, loving Babe uh, as a a kid, but like being like, what? I already saw Gordy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That, uh, and I'm like the amazing panda adventure, which, was probably the first time as a kid I had the sense that I wanted to leave, even though the movie was still going on. Yeah, uh, that was a, that was a, a, a an experience as a child that you didn't quite have the words for because we didn't have like ironic, ironic detachment yet. Um, yeah, but it was uh it was a uh, the well I like movies. I asked to go here. I I. I put a lot of effort into getting here and I'm yeah. not having fun, but you don't have any of the language or, or you know, even the like uh, patience to like fix it and figure it out. And who wants to take that risk? Like, what if what if it's thrown back in your face? Like, well, last time you asked me to go to a movie, you wanted to leave. Like, not a risk worth taking for future movies. <laughs> And especially if you're a child that's, like, aware that your parents, like, put in monetary value or effort into making this happen, like, yeah. you might feel bad saying that, depending okay. on your age as well. But, yeah, yeah. Th- I, go, I get what you're saying. And, like, this was a movie that I didn't see as a kid. I thought maybe I had. Uh, instead, I realized it was just on... Uh, various promotional clamshell like you know the the the, the, uh, the trailer package before uh, various clamshell movies that I did enjoy. So uh, I thought I'd seen it, but it was just because like you know whatever the minute and a half, two minutes of uh, of imagery was stuck in my head. Yeah. Did you did you really quick and then we'll we'll transition to the movie uh, proper. Did you have any connection whatsoever to like American folklore? It kind of feels to me like it's a. Maybe you were aged out a little. Like, I feel like maybe it just wasn't as around in the late 90s. But maybe that's maybe that's um, a very subjective way to view it through that lens. 
Uh, no, I didn't really, I didn't really care about, uh, folklore much when I was, I was a kid. Um, unfortunately, like I, I liked spooky stories that probably fell under folklore. Like I loved reading, I had a little like condensed version of Sleepy Hollow that I used to read. Um, but not, uh, this sort of, uh, American West character. So like I was familiar with them enough, but I, I think it's because, I think it's because, like, it's the same reason I like Stephen King. It's because I very much resented school growing up, and uh, I resented a lot of uh, things that were introduced to me at school. <laughs> and we read about folklore in school, so, um, you know, uh, I, I, I thought about it as boring school shit. But Stephen King was something I chose for myself, right? Like, um, so it, it, it's kind of a maybe not, you know, ti- a timely example because that was probably, you know, five five years later or so when I started getting into Stephen King. But sort of yeah. the specifics. You- like, I, I think I just resented school so much when I was a kid that anything that happened in school was automatically, like, dirty by comparison or by my, my picture of my picture of you as a child which i've talked about many times in the show is that's come together through various anecdotes is someone who if they were told they're supposed to like it because because it's a kid thing you're like fuck that dude <laughs> i'm gonna go look <laughs> at weird japanese porn <laughs> it was also uh, a a uh, uh, uh it was more of an apprehension towards kitty stuff um, yeah. because I was the youngest child, which I, but I, but I can see like Pegos Bill being in that, like he rode a whirlwind. No, he did grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> Making you literally uh, the character Nick Stahl from Tall Tale. <laughs> That's the character's <laughs> name, right? Nick Stahl. <laughs> yeah. Why not? What, what else could his name be? I will also say, and this will be the last thing. John we'll say Connor. Go. Yeah. That like. Seeing Nick Stahl pop up in a Terminator movie after not seeing him anything and eight years later, I'm like, is that the guy from Tall Tale? They made him John Connor? He does not look anything like Edward Furlong. <laughs> yeah, he's not a bad John Connor. Yeah, he's not. Uh, they they, they kind of had to throw that away because uh, they took too long between uh, that movie and, you know, whatever, the, the fourth one. But uh, he yeah, wasn't nine, bad. Nine years. The movie's yeah. not that bad. I mean, at this point, though, like, who hasn't played John Connor? Like, and Andy Warhol's quote is very true. Like, in, in the future, everyone will be John Connor for one movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you guys want to talk more about Disney's Tall Tale? The amazing adventure of Pecco Spell. Yes and no. the taglines i yes i am um <laughs> oh jeez oh jeez i think that's what disney uh, marketing executives were saying when they tried to make a tagline for this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can i, just, I can why I... do i think the real tagline is stupid as shit let's pull it up Hold oh jeez! Oh, I remember geez. this tagline like really reaching for the stars. Um, oh, let's shit. Okay, wait. Here it is. I gotta see if I can zoom though. Okay. Uh 
A journey into a world where legends come to life, dreams come true, and every boy is a hero. <laughs> That's, uh, that is, uh, could apply to pretty much any 80s children's film, right? Uh, yeah. But, like, man, that, is, that, that seems... is a, a tagline with the serial number scratched off. Yeah. Uh, so, the, what happens in this movie? So, I, I'm just going to refer to You don't even get to hear Peter's alternate taglines. <laughs> yeah, he waited too long. <laughs> Go ahead. What's your alternate tagline? Uh, hey, quit Nick Stalin and get to the uh, uh, recap. <laughs> worth it. Very worth it. Yeah. I hope everyone cringed just a little. Not enough to dislike Oh, me, Peter yelling at me. Great Scott, Glenn. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I forgot it was Scott Glenn. I wrote David Carradine. <laughs> uh, yeah, David Carradine was, was uh, like, he filled in for half the shots, possibly. <laughs> Who would know? <laughs> um, he, I actually, uh, fuck, who's the guy from Aliens? Bishop. Paul Reiser. Bishop. Why am I forgetting? Oh, Lance Henriksen. Yeah, also could be Lance oh. Henriksen. Also was there for <laughs> David one David Carradine, Scott Glenn, Paul Reiser, all easily confused from another. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would love to see Paul Reiser as the he. He, had, he was doing Mad About You. He was probably uh, probably more expensive, weirdly, than Scott Glenn. Um, anyway, so uh, Nick's. I'm going to refer to everyone that is not a tall tale by their actor's name and that that's just going to be it there's two characters three characters uh so nick stall's like i don't like working at the farm and i saw a motorless carriage or horseless carriage i supposed to have a motor um so it makes it horseless before before cars they called just horse carriages motorless carriages which is crazy because they didn't know what a motor was but i know they called them pre-cars but uh he fucks up their uh their plowing because he lets the Clydesdale run rampant through the fields. Clydesdale, and does that a type of meat car? What? <laughs> is a Clydesdale a type of meat car? A meat motorcycle? Oh, I, I see what you're doing. Uh, sure. Yes, Peter. 100%. Thank you for being additive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, so his dad, like, freaks out at him. And is like, you don't understand the land. His dad, of course, played by Stephen Lang. Who is an, a fantastic actor, and actually, this dumb fucking movie made me choked up at the end because of his face acting. But um, he uh, he's like, you don't understand uh, the work in the land. You can't be looking at cars when you're gonna be riding those Clydesdales, those meat cars all day. And he's like, fuck you, dad. I don't want your life. Um, and uh, his dad's like, well, you should want my life. But anyways, there's an evil railroad baron. Uh, played by Scott Glenn, who's trying to buy out the town to both drill in it and also build a railroad through it, basically strip it for its resources. Not like these good country folk who stripped it from people uh, to grow farm stuff. Um, but they, uh, <laughs> uh, he, uh, Stephen Lang makes a big show in the meeting about how that uh, dying <laughs> being buried next to his grandpa is more important than money uh, and Scott Glenn wasting no time because apparently there's no law in this town or this whatever it is uh, I was like okay we'll kill that guy then and so he gives the deed to his son who runs away and hides at their house which seems like easy to find him um, and Stephen Lane gets shot in the leg they're like I don't know if he's going to recover 
Uh, Nixdal goes into a boat, which seemingly drifts away as he's crying because he thinks his dad's going to die, understandably. He ends up in what I, I think is like the end of the world. <laughs> he ends up in a Mad Max movie, uh, some desert apocalypse. Uh, and two people are there who try to rob him of his deed. And then who comes and saves the day? A, tor- a twister. Uh, which uh, Pecos Bill, played by Patrick Swayze, comes out of. He uh, does his Pecos Bill stuff, like shoots off, threatens to shoot off, or shoots off a trigger finger, um, and and gives a speech about who he is, and then saves the day. And then Pecos Bill hears the story of why Nick Stahl's out there, and they got to get back to the to the West and uh, and and get the deed to save their dad. He goes great. Well, I'll take you on this adventure, but we got to find my friends, Paul Bunyan and John Henry. So they they recruit Paul Bunyan uh, and John Henry throughout this. Uh, well, the, and both of them are doing like Paul Bunyan, John Henry stuff. Like John Henry loses to a machine, and Paul Bunyan is is not giant, but does have a blue ox, which I think again my. My biggest connection to these characters was that Paul Bunyan was a giant that was fucking cool, and they made him Oliver Platt side, which I think was a mistake. Um, Why is Paul Bunyan so little? He looks smaller than Andre the Giant in Princess Bride. Well, because he's played by Oliver Platt, and Oliver Platt's about 5'10". He looks smaller than Gandalf does in Lord of the Rings. Like they, They use almost no force perspective to make him look bigger. I don't think he's supposed to be bigger. I think he's supposed to just have the strength of a big, like, it's that idea of, like, bringing it into some semblance of realism, which makes no sense for the rest of it, but... At least give him some, like, all right, he's not I know, they should have made him... Feet, j- he's, he's eight feet. Like, make something. Him, don't cast Oliver Platt, cast the My Giant guy from the movie My Giant. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. Or, or Dikembe Mutombo. Or are you just uh, naming tall people now? Kim Olajuwon or Shaquille O'Neal. Shaq was acting. Uh, so, um, so, anyways, I would you know what this movie would be maybe my favorite of, of uh, movie of all time if everything was the same except for Shaquille O'Neal playing Paul Bunyan. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it would certainly they, wake me up when whenever he'd come on screen. Like, what's Shaq gonna say? What's Shaq, what's Shaq up to? Uh, I'll just use Shaq Fu on these fools. Shut the fuck up, you're Paul Bunyan. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'll use uh, Bun Fu on these people. Um, anyway, so they uh, they all uh, end up teaming up to go. Say- Meanwhile, everyone's kind of shitty to this kid because this kid sucks. He's like, I can't do it. I can't. I hope. And they're like, why are we helping this kid, Pecos? And Pecos is like, don't worry. He's going to turn around. Can we park here real quickly? I sure. know you're, you're in the middle of a recap, but this was something that got on my fucking nerves when I was kid. A kid sucks. Is that, okay, Anno- annoy- an annoying kid as a lead is obviously annoying. That's It's in the description of an yeah. annoying kid. I didn't want a child surrogate in my movies. Like, I didn't want someone who I could be like, ooh, as a child, it's easy for me to jump in there. I wanted to be Indiana Jones. I didn't want to be Mutt or, or Short Round or whatever. Like, I, I didn't want to be... Um, 
I actually didn't want to be Luke either, but I didn't I didn't want to be Anakin. I wanted to be Han Solo, right? Like, yeah. ki- kids, uh, ki- I don't know. Kids need a character they can identify with as like a newbie, maybe. But yeah. kids don't necessarily need an actual kid that's a newbie and fucking useless and whines all the time. And it's like, he does. He just <laughs> I sucks. I can't tell and you, also, John Henry. I can't lift any more <laughs> railroad ties. Like, he, and he's like, he's acting like he ran a marathon. He lifted two railroad ties before that. Like, Doesn't he work on a farm? This kid should be swole. He's very bad yeah, at working kid, on a farm. You missed the whole beginning. I know. <laughs> he's too bad at working on a farm. And also, like, he is too whiny and has no faith or confidence um, after he meets creatures of legend. Like, like he should have a little bit more, like, oh, the guy that just ran out of a tornado? And I just met Paul Bunyan and his blue ox. Maybe I'll give them a little bit of something instead of he still just start with the most ridiculous one, right? Like yeah, he, he starts with the one that literally comes out of a tornado and yeah. then like, all right, a really small ox. Like that's believable. A really big guy that can swing an axe. That's pretty believable. Like John Henry's strong as shit. All right. Now there's two swole guys. I guess that's a bit much. But uh, like he sees the most crazy thing first and he spends the rest of the movie like, uh-huh folklore's not real <laughs> i can't do it pecos um <laughs> anyway so after they meet up they have a little bit of a hiccup in that calamity jane who go back and watch the previews they they are like patrick swayze as pecos bill and Catherine o'hara as calamity as jane. they should She's in have the movie been. for a as scene they should have been yeah, because this is the this they they should have tried these people as human rights violators for putting Catherine O'Hara in this movie as Calamity Jane for one scene. And this is my major complaint about this movie. No, it's 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 oh, infuriating because I'm like because I watched the preview and I read the Wikipedia before I watch it. And she's listed as like stars Patrick Swayze, like those four people as the heroes. And I'm like, I just don't remember her in that much in the movie. And she was in less than I remembered. She is in half a scene. The scene's already halfway over. She shows up. You don't even see her put him in jail. They're just in just jail. Just the, the crazy ex-girlfriend of the Wild West. It is um, a bummer. Just, just the worst fucking decision of all time. But like, here's the thing: if that she might had be just come with, but... if she had just come with, and this movie actually had like some fun kind of Wild Westy, but you know, soft enough for a kids movie kind of gunfights with. Uh, Catherine O'Hara barking at bad guys to, you know, get out of their way, my way varmints, like that kind of shit, it would have been excellent. The movie would have been infused with a, 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 a comic energy that it desperately fucking needed. But instead, it's like you get a taste of Catherine O'Hara and then she's gone. Like, Well, but then it's, but then, I mean, to be honest, I don't know where she would have fit because then the movie does something that I forgot how sudden and abrupt it is. so weird. So, uh, yeah, so Nick Stahl breaks them out of jail using the blue ox, which you think means Nick Stahl is finally like, he's bought into this stuff. He's going to stop being a whiny baby and he's going to be like, we're going to save the thing, which I guess is sort of true. But in the next scene, they wake up after camping. Um, and P.S. Uh, throughout this, uh, they've been tracking him, Scott Glenn, throughout the, 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 the country. Who knows where anyone is in relation to anyone, but they're, they're tracking him, and Scott Glenn personally is like driving a train to find him. It's, it's bizarre. It does, I guess, make a little more sense in retrospect, but it's still just like, what the fuck is this? So Scott Glenn's there when they wake up in the middle of nowhere, 
with all the people and he's like give give me the deed and nick stall immediately gives him the deed and is like you guys are all idiots we never could have stopped him like he's there with paul bunyan and pecos anyways uh and these people start like reading their chants like you know like um i am in the blackest night in darkest hour whatever that shit is i guess they all have green lantern chants for american folklore um and then they just all disappear in a, a swirl of dust and you find out that he's been uh, just asleep in the boat, right? We're just getting into the third act. He gets out of the boat. Now, keep in mind, he goes in the boat thinking his dad might not make it. He comes out of the boat. His dad is up walking around and is fine again. Like, it seems like time passed while he was sleeping, taking a little day nap in the boat. But uh, whatever. So he's like, his dad's like, look, it's not worth dying over. I'm going to give the deed up. So Nick Skull goes to Scott Glenn to face him down, which keep in mind, this is like hours later. So Scott Glenn has not been chasing him um, through the town. He's just aware of his existence that he has the deed. Uh, and he says, stands in front of the train is like, I'm going to stop you. And Scott Glenn's like, yeah, run that fucking get over. Like, there's no... <laughs> There's no uh, OSHA uh, back, back, back here in the old West in 1905, and um, as he starts pushing back at the train, all of a sudden next to him is John Henry pushing back, and Paul Bunyan is cutting down the the support for the railroad tunnel, and as uh, the town starts pushing next, pushing the train back as well, uh, Scott Glenn sends goon, which goons. Which uh, Pecos Bill then shoots off all their trigger fingers. And kind of a funny scene where they all start simultaneously yelling, my trigger finger, my trigger finger. Um, at least funny as it relates to this movie. Um, and then uh, in the, Paul Bunyan's like, you have one more axe to, to bury Scott Glenn alive. Do you want to take the final swing, Nick Stahl? And he does, and he buries Scott Glenn alive. Which will probably come back to him someday in his psyche. Um, but then he goes back to the farm. And... Um, Thinking that, I don't know what the movie's supposed to make you think about whether these people are real or not at this point. But uh, they all say up to sh- they all show up to say goodbye. <laughs> um, and his dad sees him and he puts his like little hat on his uh, when they're doing this the Old West salute. And he gets choked up realizing that his kid was telling the truth. And uh, we don't need to spend time on this, but that got me weirdly choked up for a second, even though nothing in the movie had deserved it. But uh, Stephen Lang's got good facial acting. <laughs> A good um, actor. And, good actor. Uh, and, like, I don't know. It's probably firing off some sort of... It's triggering some sort of dad buttons for you. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, I my son was telling the truth, and also he got to meet legendary heroes that I've always wanted to meet uh, after he saved the day. That's, that's good dad button stuff. <laughs> um, so, so they all say goodbye, and then Pecos Bill, in the weirdest payoff that, that has not been at any point established... <laughs> Gives him gives Nick Stahl his horse. Like Nick Stahl has never made it seem like he was interested in the horse, that he wanted a horse of his own. Horses, besides a form of transportation, do not come up. And he's like, by the way, your your my horse is yours now. I don't have no longer any need for it. Um, <laughs> and he, what the big fuck? horse fan? Yeah, I mean, uh, it just never came up before. Like, that is supposed to be a payoff to, like, I hope I get a horse of my own someday. Um, but nothing. 
just gives him his horse like a well, chore. And particularly upsetting <laughs> when in the 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 Disney animated short from the forties that that is a precursor to this. It is essentially a romance between uh, Pecos Bill and, and Widowmaker, where Pecos Bill falls in love and Widowmaker functionally murders his girlfriend because he's in love with Pecos Bill. So. <laughs> yeah, maybe this was the way, like, that, that Pecos Bill was actually just trying to break up That's, with. It's a, it's a direct no, no, keep, sequel. Keep the horse. Um, this whole thing was a catfish to get you to take my horse. Um, yeah, then he rides off on a tornado, and that's that's the end of... That's the end of Tall Tale. Um, I, I feel like we have to start in that this movie just gives up. I... I like it, it is like well, we've run out of ideas of how to get to continue to go from point A to point B. I guess we'll just skip all that shit and say maybe it was imaginary, and then just just fast forward to the end. Like I can't remember a movie that feels like it. It literally on its own is like well, I don't fucking know. Well, Let's, there's you just want to go to the end. So there's a there's a movie that is uh, does a similar thing but far more artfully. Um, and we've all discussed it. Um, Return to Oz. So um, Return to Oz has Dorothy getting into a boat uh, when she's she's trying to escape real life, you know, sort of horrors. Uh, she falls asleep in the boat, floats downstream or whatever. She she floats downstream on a piece of wood, I think. Um, and then she yeah. wakes up in Oz. I think it's like a bed from the sanitarium. Yeah, yeah. But it's, Cabinet, you know, anything could be crib. a boat as long yeah. as it floats in the water, right? Um, yeah. And then she wakes up, whatever. And if then, it weighs the same as the duck. <laughs> and then that movie kind of uh, similarly has to get her back to the to the real world, right? This, But in that movie, like, they kind of, they kind of let you know pretty early on that it's either, like... She is entering some sort of like metaphysical reality via this this you know traumatic scary event, or this is all a dream, and like it kind of doesn't matter because that's what the original Wizard of Oz did. And this, it's just this like this this like <laughs> awkward. Uh, is it real? Is it fake? We're not really committed to making this mystery interesting. We're not really committed to to adding enough detail to to make this fascinating. Um, and like, if the movie ended with him, you know, solving some sort of Wild West mystery, and then coming back to the real world, and him being like, that gave me context for why you know my my dad is right or why my dad is wrong, and I need to go out and you know get my own adventures. Um, that would have been fine, but instead, it's all these kind of fucking half measures, and then the movie ends with the kid just basically like be appreciating his dad a little more like it's just <laughs> well also like the thing just, that he it's, so it's, it's, the inciting incident i hate it. it is but the inciting incident that sends him back with like a sense of purpose is an incident that he caused himself like in the, in those types of movies like yeah um dorothy learns bravery through this and then has the ability to confront her own demons at the sanitarium and return to us right like, she came out of that dream a better person, and as such, is acting on that. So, dream dissipates in Tall Tale because uh, Nick Stahl gives up suddenly. <laughs> and <laughs> I guess his learning from, the, from like, that... I guess the movie's over. I'm bored with it. <laughs> yeah, and then, so I guess his his learning from that... And his thing that he takes to the real world is, oh, shit, I shouldn't have just fucking gave up suddenly. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do the opposite of that now, which is not give up. <laughs> so, like, even as, like, a structure, like, 
that's why it feels so sudden. Like, and then, yeah, like you, you don't see then the, the lion killing, like, now that I trust this, the lion's going to eat the sanitarium doctor. Um, but they show back up twice, uh, inexplicably and other people are around both. I, I, I don't know what this movie is supposed to think of, about. Like, it's not a it's not a Peter Pan or a Wizard of Oz, like, is it real? Is it not real? Does it matter? It's like, uh, is it, what the fuck was that? Ethan, what was that like returning as an adult? Like, is someone who loved this as a kid, did, did those, did that, like, sudden, like, just, just terrible storytelling, obviously, probably missed you by as a nine-year-old? Well, I was I was definitely shocked by the structuring of it because it is <laughs> it is so sort of clearly set up to be it was all a dream. Like Wizard of Oz, I don't I haven't watched Wizard of Oz particularly recently, but you don't see Dorothy fall asleep like the house gets blown away. And this this yeah. you know, he falls asleep in the boat because that's what you do when your dad gets shot is you you cry until you suddenly just pass out in the middle of the day. <laughs> Um, it, it's, I was like, okay, so this is, it's a, it's a story within a story. All right. That's kind of too bad. Cause that sort of robs the framing story of any kind of magic. And then it is, it is very shocking when with 25 minutes left, the heroes just disappear. <laughs> and I, I confess I, I hit pause and I scrubbed ahead. Cause I was like, do, do they come back? Like, is this just it? Cause this is going to be <laughs> pathetic. And it it was hard for me to to watch this and not kind of get hung up on on the ways that it could have been more interesting with like 25% more sort of thought and care into the decisions it was making this is a movie that that did not have to be as sort of as as flat or not even flat but just as weird and disjointed as it is um and and for me a lot of it comes down to to the Paul Bunyan character because yeah. they are doing something with him that is potentially very interesting which is he's he's a version of Paul Bunyan who has time has passed him by or he no longer recognizes the world as it is and is disheartened and he's become a drunkard. And you could even fold that into the fact that he is now small and for some reason dressed as a fur trapper, which is not part of the whole Paul Bunyan deal. Yeah, where is this it's flannel? It's bizarre. And that seems like an over the plate right. thing. And, and it, one of the various surprising things that came into my head during this was American Gods, the Neil Gaiman book, which became a TV show mm. that I never watched, but I did read the book. Which has this this sort of fascinating concept of the core, which is all of the gods of world cultures were real and did exist, but have become sort of diminished in power by the world's progress. And that is the vibe I was getting from Paul Bunyan. And I was like, if you extended this to Pecos Bill and you made this like... You know, it's 1905. These characters are all ostensibly sort of past their prime. There's yeah. there's a lot there that you could play with and make a cool Disney mo movie out of. And they and they just it's it's so scattered. Like the Paul Bunyan character is basically that Oliver Platt is weird casting. He's not giving a very good performance. And then Pecos Bill is just 
just classic Pecos Bill doing sort of bland Pecos Bill stuff. And so that that bummed me out more than anything else was just the the sort of lack of full-throated embrace of any vision of these characters. So, you know, cuz cuz yeah. I remember this as a kid, as I was, you know, I was 9 when this movie came out. It was a it was a rip-roaring, yeah. rip-snorting, rip-ripping adventure that it just and it's neither a subversion nor a depiction, right. really, yeah. right? Because it's, it's not really telling you the full story. I mean, with John Henry, it'd be a pretty sad introduction. Um, <laughs> you just see him fighting off against the machine and then his heart explodes. Um, but uh, they're not really... Yeah, this time a- Nick Stahl just fucks him, which I feel like is also a weird depiction. <laughs> I think John Henry like, comes they're, they're off not... best in all of this. I think that that performance oh, yeah. is really oh, good. Yes, that yes. set piece really works with the Monument Valley backdrop that I, I could never figure out if they actually they, they can't have gone to Monument Valley to shoot that, right? That has to be rear projection. I think they did. Yeah, they had a lot of money. I think this is most of the money here was like casting and uh, and location shooting from what I well, can tell. Well, aside from Nick Stahl's bizarre little, like, wilting flower performance, that is that is the one sequence in the movie I think really sort of works. And and whoever that actor is... Agree. I, lo- I love that sequence. And also, and that's even not understanding it until this time. I didn't, like, as a kid, and maybe this never registered with you, so this I may be alone on an island here, like, as a kid, I didn't quite understand what the goal was, but it seemed to me like he had he had drove in three Same. I'm, I'm still confused. And so, like, I didn't understand why he lost to the machine doing one stake. And it wasn't until this watch where I realized that, like, uh, that those smaller stakes allow you to drive in the bigger stake without breaking the rock. Mm. But, like, I had to intuit that based on, like... Right before that sequencing, or right before that sequence going, okay, I'm going to finally figure out what's going on here. Like, I remembered that, that I never understood how he lost. Um, and it's a weird thing to not explain to kids, because it definitely felt like, a, well, didn't he win? I don't understand how he lost that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get that either. It was just it, the 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 nobody was replacing the the machine stakes, so it was yeah. just hammering one in. And John Henry did so many that like eventually the rock fucking split. Like his last his last slam was enough to absolutely destroy the rock. I, I don't yeah, know. but I saw in the background of him going go to the next one, and then he pulls out the first one, and they're all progressively longer. I actually rewound and watched it <laughs> twice. I'm like, okay, so and then I like tried to look it up a little bit and just saw like. You don't start with the long one. You start with uh, because you can't because if it, with how long it would be like he would be hitting it above his head, which is impossible. So you have to like keep drilling the hole down. <laughs> and we all learn something. We all need to be more familiar with the John Henry story, I guess. Um, or just just how railroad uh, spikes or whatever work. Uh, one really quick thing on this because we're never going to get back to it. Um, at the end of the movie, when he says goodbye to John Henry, because he says goodbye to all of them. Um, uh, you know, his job was a shaker, which, like I said, he failed at so bad that John Henry lost. Um, uh, he goes, hey, and if you ever need a shaker. And John Henry's response is, I'll keep you in mind, which I think is supposed to mean, of course, I, I you know, you'll be my shaker. What a nice ending. But he doesn't say, yeah. He's like, yeah. I mean, 
I'll keep you we'll in just, mind. We'll, I'll, we'll, we'll like, see how it goes. Like, it's just, you know, there's we got a lot of pieces moving, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll call you. Yeah. Depends on locations, like, it, a lot of factors. Like, I am aware that you do shaking. Uh, but, yeah, you know, we'll call you. Don't call us. But I'll keep you in mind. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is, a, uh, if that's how it was meant, which it probably wasn't, uh, it's that's, that seems about right. Because even if John Henry now likes this kid, I don't think you'd get him as a shaker again. You like to think that uh, you keep you, you keep your old... Um shaking for around forever but uh, eventually you gotta go to the big time it's like it, it's like getting rid of your small town agent and uh, a big <laughs> la one you know uh yeah you although i guess if the i guess if the whole thing is a dream it makes sense because i've had those dreams where all of a sudden walking was really difficult and you're just like nah, i don't know how to walk um <laughs> so the fact that he got that like out of breath and winded after like lifting up two uh railways uh, railroad spikes uh, makes a little more sense. You think it makes a good point. Um, John Henry is a well-performed, uh, well-performed character. I don't think he gets full credence, but you know, um, at least he he gets to sort of tell uh, you know a new generation, like you know, for instance, Aaron's daughter, um, what uh, what the actual myth is. I feel like for the rest of them, yeah, it's neither subverting the the myth nor particularly expressing it uh, for a new generation. Um, and I know for a new generation has like a very like sort of like satiric context to it. But like, I mean that sincerely, like if this folklore matters and the movie is contending that this folklore matters, like spend a little, uh, spend a little goddamn time making sure you, uh, you, you properly explain to us why this folklore matters other than getting mad at our audience surrogate for, uh, thinking it doesn't matter. But really quickly on that, like. Folklore matters like the message that they're ostensibly selling to kids is like, I don't know, like either I'm, I'm interested that if, whether like the message of this um, uh, like hit you as a nine year old. I feel like it did. I talked to my brother a little bit like and he just he, I mean, he just liked the gun part, I guess, when he was <laughs> nine. Like, but the idea of like technology is like uh, something to be fought against. Like, I'll tell you, as a 12 year old who. Just it's just like was like well no I I don't want to do any of that and also like one of my notes is like hashtag Scott Glenn was right like a speech at the end like you can't stop this like yeah no I mean you couldn't thankfully like this this thing of like that going back to living and taming the land was something like that all the kids in the audience should want to do just I think really misunderstands children. <laughs> <laughs> uh pl- plowing that field i gotta tell you to most kids it's not something that like they would go yeah and we talked about that in honey i frank the kids like how these kid movies succeed by how much the kids want to experience them and that like the idea of being shrunk and experiencing that backyard theme park was a world that we wanted to live in where like no one wanted to be Nick Stahl, probably. Nick <laughs> Stahl doesn't even want to be Nick Stahl in this movie. He's kind of guilted into it by his dad almost dying. Did any of that resonate with you, Ethan, as a nine-year-old? Or was it just, I like the I like these characters and I like... Shoot. I think I just wanted to see Pecos Bill ride a whirlwind. I, I have no idea how I felt as a nine-year-old. Um, and, and, you know, that ox sure is blue. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> it, it, it does feel very scattered and muddled in terms of, I, I spent basically the whole runtime kind of trying to reconcile what 
is the message here. And the moment that it clicks and I think kind of kind of coheres and sings is when uh, Nick Stahl is really just such a powerful character that we physically cannot remember his name. Um, Daniel, I think, is is describing sure. to all of them the concept of electric lights and they all <laughs> and they all say like well but then how are you going to see the stars and that was when i go okay so we as an audience are not supposed to think that progress could not or should not have happened it's it's just that we should remember the sort of something elemental and beautiful that was that was lost in the process it is hard now in the year 2020, and I, I shudder to think, I apologize, future Ethan, who is listening to this in November or beyond, <laughs> how this will ring. But it is it is very hard not to watch something like this and not think about, so what you're saying is like, we should like make America great again? Like, it's that, it, it is, that's yeah. that weird tension that America has with the idea of like, we want progress, but only up to a certain point, but it ruined something that was great before, but also we don't, we, we don't want to give up what we have now, but it should have been like it was before, but also it's, it's just the sort of the, the confusion and, you know, muddled American self-perception all kind of made manifest in a 90s kids movie yeah in a weird sort of yeah. way well it's also like when you, when you hear stuff like taming the land right like where you go well sure like by taming the land you don't mean like untouched undiscovered you mean displacing indigenous people and putting and up barbed wire fences which completely destroy their hunting culture and keep yeah. them from accessing wildlife that roam but that used to roam freely between tracts of land like uh so just to to like carry on that point um yeah, as we kind of move towards the end um i think that the I think what Ethan was saying is true, but it also points to the fact that, like, this is a children's movie. It has inherent limitations. I don't necessarily think that, like, kids playing um, kids playing a little bit of mental cosplay in the Wild West is inherently bad. No. I, I, I think there's a reason the, the era has an allure, but there is a reason that most of the best Westerns are not about the heyday of the Western, that most of the best Westerns are about the death of the West. And are well, most of the best Westerns are just really affordable for a night. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, you're, you, some have pools and free HBO. Yeah. And it's always nice when you're you're on the road for a really long time to to get to, to, to pull off and you Later we'll leave the light on. The beds for are going to be clean. You know. You know that. You know that you're not gonna. You're not gonna have to pay those high fees that that come with uh, the. You know the, the big hotel chains. The Marriott. yeah, and they're usually you usually can see the stars because they're in the abandoned part of town. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the best westerns are about about the death of the west, and they are uh, whether they're 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 veering into lost causeism, which is obviously uh, offensive, but or they're veering into hey, this was like a period where America was full of possibilities. And then one day um, it, it felt like for an entire generation that, uh, you know, all of America had been seen. America, the American possibilities had, had run their course.
course, and we had seen some of the, and if it's a smart Western, we had seen some of the ugly cost to that expansion. And um, that's why movies like Wild Bunch fucking rule. And like kids movies, I think, uh, if, you, if you're going to make a kids movie that's about sort of these like folk heroes dying out and going away, like I, I imagine it's really hard to thread the needle to make a movie that's kind of about the death of the West and the death of folklore uh, and takes place in 1905, which is cl- clearly like the, the, the tail end of, of, of the West. And uh, all of a sudden... Uh, it also has to be a kids movie, and a it railroad can't actually... in 1905. <laughs> like it, it can't, it can't, like I, I don't think kids movies can be necessarily. Well, that's but that's about, my point, uh, though, right? The, the, the death of the West in any way that like children could understand. Yeah, I mean that's my point is that like there's no ramp up to that. Like I think that message, right or wrong or good or bad, like does resonate with adults. That idea of like in this in this fast hustle bustle work-a-day world I'm living in. I never stop and see the stars. And I would say that that feeling, to Ethan's point, can be both co-opted for evil and is kind of bullshit to begin with. But, um, like, I can see why that's a message for a lot of uh, movies aimed at adults or westerns or whatever else aimed at adults. Uh, it, for, as it, Like, for kids, it just doesn't feel like you, like you're, like most westerns I can think of that are aimed at kids are like their, their core idea is more about like friendship. And that's probably friendship or family or something or loyalty. So something pretty like over the line kid stuff. Uh, and that seems like a better thing because then the kid walks away as going like, yeah, the point is to be like, you know, to, to stand up for my friend Pecos as opposed to like, well, I guess I never get to drive a car because if I don't work on this farm till I die, I'm giving up my family's legacy. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it, it, it's true. And like uh, it is it is good to note that this movie is in the shadow of like Three Musketeers was trying to emulate the success of Young Guns and like uh, those those kind of like advent- those sort of like uh, adventure uh, period adventure films and like this movie was definitely not trying to emulate Young Guns on a tacit level but it came from a similar set of producers to the to the Three Musketeers and such where that were like you can make a family a family sort of adventure film set in this era and have it be fun and rousing and everyone's gonna everyone's gonna fucking love it. Well, can I tell you, can I tell you the movie that this reminded me the most of? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> it's on the tip of everyone's tongue. This, to a bizarre extent, is kind of the kids' version of There Will Be Blood. When Scott Glenn walks into the uh, meeting house at the beginning, it is... A, an eerily similar setup to Daniel Plainview's um, opening sort of pitch to the to the townsfolk. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here, and I've you know this is a an opportunity that you don't want to pass up. And it is this bizarre sort of it, two movies set off on the same path, and then the the children's movie takes the weird offshoot. Where one of the characters says, no, I won't. No, Daniel Plainview, I'm going to stand up to you and I need to pull in all of the great heroes of American folklore to bury you in a mountain. <laughs> the great thing about There Will Be Blood, among the many great things, is it, it is 
it's sort of folklore. It's a creation myth of the American West of, of modern America. And it's very bitter and it's very cynical. But but it is the it is the real 20th century American folklore. And so to to see something that is starts off on such a similar foot and then shoot off in this other direction is, I think, part of what created such cognitive dissonance for me. Is like so if if you are ignoring so many of the sort of core truths, if you are willfully pushing away what sort of did actually make America what it was, then what, as, as I think we've been circling back to a bunch here, what are you pushing on me as a viewer? Yeah. <laughs> you know, cap- capitalism yeah. stinks, you know, no kidding, man. But it's yeah. having that delivered via a, a big glossy Disney movie is the height of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's uh that's 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 such a good point. That like I I don't in- exactly know if the journey that they're on is a noble journey, right? Like I love the idea that you can maybe uh reintroduce a new generation to folklore and sort of help um help get like uh help create a sort of multi-generational connection to these myths and then those myths build up over time and then who knows like maybe like 200 years from now kids are still like thinking about the 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 idea of paul bunyan or john henry i think john henry is probably the one that would be most um (laughs) for for kids in uh 200 years i imagine john henry will be the one that resonates the most um but um the I don't know if it's on a noble journey trying to represent those myths and and, and, hel- and hold on to them. I, 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 I don't. Yeah, because, I mean, at the end, you're right. He does stand up to capitalism, but, like, they're both on the side of genocide. <laughs> well, and capitalism says, basically, I am a hydra, and you cut off this head, but three more yeah. are coming. And he goes, all right, but I'll cut this yeah. head off. And, and, you know, fair enough. That's like, you know, it's not a... Not a bad lesson, all things considered. It's it's just goes it goes back to yeah. the weird sort of vague mushmouth whole theme of this movie. I I have had in front of me for like the last half hour the just the the quote the code that all of these characters theoretically live by. There are three great <laughs> principles, and yeah. I keep trying to make it make sense. It is respect the land, defend the defenseless, and never spit in front of women or children. And it's it just means nothing. <laughs> You, yeah, you it's absolutely you vacuous. You can't build a whole movie on that. It's, it's, it's. Also, you can't both respect the land you stole and defend the defenseless. I, I mean, it's, uh. it's true. It is, it is hard to. It, it is a pro. There's some controversy. It's a product of the '90s. I mean, watching this in the year yeah. 2020, particularly, is is very weird. Aaron, you mentioned earlier um, that you had had been reading something about the the way John Henry functions as as representation for black viewers. Do you? Oh yeah. So um, I didn't get too detailed, but that he's still seen as like um, uh, this idea of uh, of uh, a, a folk hero when it comes to like um, African American specifically, like. Uh, um, not just people of color, but like African Americans, like uh, defining themselves at, um, and their workers' rights post slavery and Reconstruction, as like someone who like um, that they were like um, able to do the work 
that um and and could do the work better than as like free people as opposed to slaves and really the whole allegory as i could see it again this is a cursory glance through a little bit of where that came from so i am probably not doing it uh justice but the concept being that like machines were a new incarnation of like um white landowners white capitalists needing to have control over the thing that did the work and John Henry being a folk hero of kind of showing or theoretically showing that like that uh, the best uh, African American worker is a is a free uh, is a free worker and a, like a human worker. So that's why he's like he's like a big symbol in uh, especially black people in this country's uh, labor movements, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, and I I can imagine especially like. Um for a group of people that the uh, capitalist system has stepped on, uh, idea that your labor can be replaced um, yeah. is 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 a very scary idea, right? Because um, sure, during slavery times, they probably didn't mind that like they would hire uh, certain other ethnic groups to do dangerous jobs, um, but uh, after slavery times, like oh yeah, well if you're just hiring. Uh, if you're just hiring a black person, then they can go do the dangerous jobs, uh, you know, for five dollars a day or whatever. I have no idea what the fucking going rate was for re- redoing a roof in the 1870s, but probably not five dollars a day. Uh, no, that seems excessive. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean. But like the idea that like that, that your labor could be easier easily replaced, and oh yeah. shit, your labor could be replaced by a machine. The white man's gonna come up with a new way to make you yeah. you you even further pushed off. Yeah, as opposed to giving you dignity as a human being and as a worker, um, we're just going to find another way to uh, make um, to to deny people like uh, labor rights. And that's why I feel like I want a John Henry movie. I don't necessarily want a Pecos Bill movie. And also, we also don't need a Calamity Jane movie because we uh, I saw Deadwood and it was kind of sad. So, um (laughs) You know what I think they should have thrown in the mix here? Like, as long as they're throwing for- folklore people in here, I think throw Casey and the Bat in the in the mix. Like, I get he doesn't quite fit what you're doing, but, you know, like a guy walking around hitting people with baseball bats? Like, it's not going to – it's certainly not going to detract from the – I think you're thinking of Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. Sure, but like, like, you know, they pass by a baseball field or something like that and, and they – this guy like – I forget what's Casey the Bat steal. He stays at the Bat a long time. I honestly he, don't remember. He's too, I watched he's too the cocky. The, he he uh, he takes the first two pitches and just lets them go by, and then he he gets struck out because he was too cocky. He didn't swing. That's our one of our. Fo- he he was listed as a, like American folk heroes. Like I did a list, and it is a mix of like fictional people and non-fictional people, which definitely tracks probably with like everything Ethan was saying at the onset. Like yeah, Paul Revere is an understandable folk hero. My great 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 grandfather. Um, True story. Paul really? Revere. My great 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 great. Great grandfather, yep. Do you fear him? Well, you know, we are reckoning with the problematic uh, nature of our American past right now. I won't say that I have looked that deeply into my ancestors' uh, actions and deeds. Um, yeah, probably if you were around that long, I would not. Yeah. Not until you're really prepped for it. I, <laughs> I, I revere uh, much about my heritage, and there is much that I am deeply skeptical of. Much. There's a great, uh, there's a great Beastie Boys song named after your ancestors, and I feel like that's honor enough for you. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's called Three the Hard You know what's weird about this movie? (laughs) It came out a quarter century ago. Yeah. Uh, I think we should make an American folklore movie about this movie. Well, this has just struck me. Like, this, this movie is as current right now as 1970 was when it came out. And how how ancient yeah. did that feel to me in 1995 versus, you know, to my kids right now, looking back on that, you know, the arc of history is is long and it is shorter <laughs> than it seems like. No, it's uh, you're, you're 100% right. Like we I think we may have mentioned this either off camera, but like the distance between the first movie we started the month with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and now is the equivalent of like me showing as a as a six-year-old being shown a movie from like 1958 (laughs) like it uh it definitely feels uh like as i show these movies to my kids especially um like that that kind of concept of like oh what's the equivalent of this for me at their age oh Uh, great. And yet it, it should theoretically feel timeless. And, and the one element of it that really does, and, and I, it, it shouldn't be downplayed, is, is the Yanush Kaminsky um, cinematography, which is in a lot yeah. of places really gorgeous. And, and so gorgeous, it yeah. does to that extent. And, and, you know, I think Westerns age very well. Um, it doesn't feel like a movie that's a quarter century old, but then just as we're sort of starting to, to poke and prod at the, the representation issues, um, it, it does not, it, it does not age <laughs> particularly well on, on that. No. Yeah. Uh, no. Um, I do, but I really quickly, I think, um, you know, my last thing I kind of wanted to mention as I said on the onset, um, that I do think that like as a movie, the cinematography and the general, like, through shot of the plot um make made it a quicker and a more enjoyable watch than me than like a three musketeers i expected so my my historical rankings my nostalgia rankings on letterbox for these ethan were four stars for three musketeers a movie i thought was going to be pretty good uh with funny casting in retrospect and is terrible and then three stars for this one and and both went down but like I think the reason that I enjoyed watching this more than Three Musketeers is that, like, Three Musketeers, as we talked at length about, is a mess of, like, uh, space and knowing where you are, knowing where characters are supposed to be. It's like a mess of blocking, and that really ruins a movie that's a chase movie, essentially, for its almost entire duration. And this one, like... like where this goes makes no sense and it throws out and gives up and does a lot of weird stuff but moment to moment scene to scene i have a sense of the goal i have sense of where they are i have sense of what's going on and like i said nothing is really like standing out as like phenomenal like say the blimp scene or the restaurant scene in the rocketeer or some of the sequences when they're shrunk and honey i shrunk the kids but it's it it at least survives as like a movie that doesn't feel like um a weird historical footnote of bizarre casting and poor blocking 
it's just not a good movie, which I think is different than, than Three Musketeers being just a excruciating. Well, so then I I don't know. I had a much worse time watching this movie than Three Musketeers, so I, I won't really speak to that. I feel like it's a that's a far more confident film, and actually, like I perk up uh, when Tim Curry comes on screen. Um, but regardless, these films are unsuccessful at sort of creating, taking us into a bit of myth making and making us feel part of the myth, right? And and to to really kind of wrap up where our thesis was. Audiences thought so too. Like Three Musketeers made, I think, like ten or fifteen million dollars past its budget. Not the success they were hoping for post um, Honey I Shrunk the Kids, or even what they were trying to ape, which is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is one of the biggest movies of the nineties. Uh, and then this just becomes like you know home to Ethan's family and no one else on a Sunday afternoon, probably. <laughs> Um, and they have to they have to change directions pretty quick because the, the the old stuff's not working, and the old stuff that they try to combine with '90s newness is absolutely not working. Yeah, and this is a era as well where like they are they are churning out. We've talked about it, we briefly touched on it, but they're churning out like straight to video uh, sequels, and like they're they're churning out sort of like. Uh, sequels to lion king that literally no one talks about except yeah. for as like uh hey did you remember that they made lion king two and a half or whatever um or like return of jafar which i only remember because it's funny when someone's talking about a, a movie having a sequel to add return of jafar at the end um <laughs> and now that electric boogaloo has been taken from me by white supremacists i need to i need to get a new one um uh, now return of jafar as a as a kid i gotta tell you what felt like almost a theatrical experience they promoted the fuck out of that first straight to video sequel and it was to a movie that like i remember like all of us rented it at a sleepover we were so i bought that movie on vhs with my own money i was so excited that that movie was a watershed moment yeah yeah, and I'm not saying these movies were necessarily bad, but I'm saying... Oh, no, that's, I, it's I'm, bad. I'm saying that Disney was... I haven't seen it in 30 years, but Disney uh, was taking these properties and, and, and the animation properties and pumping them out. And they were yeah. trying to find these prestige sort of properties in the live action space and make something out of them. And I don't think this one has it. And like, honestly, yeah. there's some stuff about this movie that's not Nick Stahl's fault. Like <laughs> for Wolf for One, the, the like he didn't not cast himself. Up. But like also like any kid that whines about being on a farm and on the Wild West and like in the background of the shot is like some these like gorgeous <laughs> yeah. Colorado mountains. You're just like just something about he's, him saying that they're not in the Laura Ingalls Wilder wheat fields. Yeah, this this is this is uh, uh, speaking as a 30 year old man. Um, my brain immediately goes to like dad mode and I'm like, don't you appreciate the great outdoors, son? Like. <laughs> Like that's oh, not you guys fault. are being mean. I'm gonna go hang out on my boat. <laughs> Fuck you. This is this, I appreciate. I appreciate uh, um, the uh, Stephen Lang position in this film more than I do, do the Nick Stahl. Like I'm closer to to that kind of guy than I am uh, to Nick Stahl. Like that's not Nick Stahl's fault. But the no. point is that the movie does not make me feel a sense of magic and mystery and wonder at jumping into American folklore. It does not make a particularly compelling case for it. it does not. Particularly funny, like this movie could be redeemed by being like knee-slappingly funny. 
Uh, and yeah. it's not funny at all. So like it, it, it kind of just we just keep saying it, it flails or it just like flops around or it, it's indecisive or uh, it's milk toast or it's mumbly mouth. Like we, it, it is. It, 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 it seems it, like an idea they had. They never cracked. Yes. They're like they were like, yep, three heroes team up, save a boy, Old West. Great. All right, let's crack that story. And they just never did it, but they still made the movie. Yeah, I should not be staring dead-eyed at the screen for so long when I met my main heroes are my main heroes are in mortal danger, right? <laughs> like, hey, hey, Burgess Meredith is in this movie. How weird is that? Oh my god, it's great. I was gonna say his uh, greatest Burgess Meredith performance is, I think, from my reckoning, in um, is it Magic, the Anthony Hopkins du- uh, dummy movie. No, you gotta oh. go. G- you gotta go. Voice uh, uh, in GI Joe the movie, the animated one from the eighties. <laughs> I mean, it's it's all about the Twilight Zone guy who breaks his glasses for me. But it is. It, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's. Oh, you've there. never wait. Hold on, you've never heard him as. I have no idea what you're talking about. But it it was very weird and poignant <laughs> and beautiful to see him in this movie. I was so not expecting that. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. He's fun. Uh, uh, I think I've kind of given my my final thoughts. Like it, it yeah, makes sense to end here. It's like uh, the you know this movie just is out of gas almost before it starts. Um, and and that's I think what we were trying to show in this little mini arc of like. You know, they kind of hit pay dirt with, uh, with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And then they just were like, okay, back to the live action template. Well, and they hit all the same like mini genres that they did in the 50s and 60s. They lost the thread almost immediately. Random Drive produced a few legitimately great movies during that time. And then eventually kind of gave up and moved into another direction. And uh, yeah, I mean, they did the same thing in the, in the, in the 90s. And uh, Tall Tale, Tom and Huck, uh, I, think, I think we're in, uh, if not D2, but almost D3 Mighty Duck sequels. They just completely lost the thread and go into some very bizarre and more, um, more bad movie podcast type movies after this before they just start um i think even now their live action story is bizarre like you know they um they bought franchises that gave them live action stuff um and then just decided to remake their entire animated catalog one movie at a time but then if you see the live action movies between those it's just bizarre they just like it's weird talking about a studio like this because you never would say like Paramount could figure out movies in between <laughs> 1985 and 1989 but like Paramount doesn't have like an aesthetic uh, necessarily like 20th Century Fox doesn't really have an aesthetic they're just trying to finance movies to make money and why Disney I think is just so interesting and why I'm sure we'll have a Disney themed or, li- or you know this type of theme months at some point in the future is because like they were trying to do that with a very specific aesthetic tone rating and a lot of other things and like it just wasn't sustainable if you're not willing to go outside of that little box that they kept making for themselves yeah, I think that's I think that's 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 a uh, where I'm at. Um, I, I I think that this month has been fascinating because of uh, the 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 alternate uh, pathways that we could have seen through history, right? Where Disney could have 
um, with a, a slight tweak in cultural expectations, a sw- slight tweak in um, in timing, uh, have kicked off like major live action franchises. And maybe at that point they wouldn't have put all their eggs in the Pixar basket. And then eventually when the P- Pixar basket uh, was not enough of a diverse portfolio for them, they wouldn't have had to say, all right, well, let's go buy the two biggest fucking franchises out there and those are going to fill out our live action catalog. And oh, wait, hold on, we can build a new franchise which is uh, making these uh, <laughs> these live-action Disney adaptations that no one seems to like. Uh, just as a note, we are recording this in September when Mulan just came out and is getting ravaged by, by uh, re- reviews, right? Like... Um, so that, uh, that, 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 that kind of thought is very fresh on our mind, the Disney's sort of live-action um, flailings um, uh, throughout the years and also that, that sort of um, explain why they've needed to put so much goddamn money into their successes and why they, they seem so neurotic about Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, they kind of did the same thing to Star Wars that they do to all their live action like little things. But that's a story for a different day, maybe at our uh, 2019 wrap up. Uh, coming in a couple months. Uh, Ethan, why don't you take us home with some final thoughts? Oh, boy. I mean, my final thoughts are that the day before yesterday, I had a cherished memory <laughs> of, so of watching a wonderful movie about all my favorite... I'm not. Open your eyes. ...tall tale heroes uh, having a, a rip, snort, and rip, roar, and rip, rip, and adventure. Um, and, and now I, I have a memory of a really lousy sort of messy muddled movie and 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 maybe that is just the story of opening your eyes to the foibles of americanism uh so you know thank you guys for for doing this for me um i don't know this yeah. movie's just kind of a bummer like it's it's not <laughs> bad enough to be interesting and it's it's certainly not good enough to be good like i'm i'm not going to rush out to introduce my kids to it at any point when there are so much no. more interesting movies and in, you know even just in the same lane um the same era the same company to to look at so i it, it is sort of the ultimate um they don't make them like this anymore kind of kind of thing which i guess is something that we've been circling a little bit like I don't even know what the equivalent even in like the last <laughs> 10 years is like that you could yeah. could go sit in a theater and watch something that is you know th- this is certainly not an original property but but that is not just a spin-off of of uh, another franchise you know Disney has its it's uh, still it's making its original movies that that go straight to Disney plus um but it is a throwback in that way. I, I mourn the loss of the ability to take my kids to see something that's that's not a pre-established um, brand. Um, but this is, you know, any any nostalgia that I'm going to conjure for a Tall Tale is is going to be uh, built on some pretty shoddy foundations. So I, I won't try and do that. Um, but I, it's it's always such a pleasure talking to you guys about nonsense. So it's certainly I will I will <laughs> sacrifice my memory of this movie on the altar of talking to you guys about nonsense. We're we're always exhausting, but just in a different way this time. <laughs> hold hold on, Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a little bit of this back on you. I feel like if you choose to revisit 
a 1990s movie starring Oliver Platt as uh, Paul Bunyan <laughs> and, uh, and and Patrick Swayze as Pecos Bill. Like, you're opening yourself up a little to the idea that I might be seeing some real shit. Okay, look, Patrick Swayze as Pecos Bill makes a certain amount of sense. The more that you say Oliver Platt as Paul Bunyan, the less I believe it ever actually happened. The The... 5'11". Those, those words don't make sense together. <laughs> the ox is so much bigger than him. That's not how it was supposed to work. Um, Ethan, uh, knowing that this comes out the last week of November, what do you have to promote? <laughs> um, boy, I mean, brightwalldarkroom.com is is a site that I still am, am devoting a lot of my energy and a lot of my joy to, even if I am not publishing quite as often um as i have been in the past few years and if you want to you can like uh do a shock call like babe ruth and be like yeah at the end of november like i'm gonna be publishing bat. a mega piece on uh the three colors trilogy well or- <laughs> i mean not not quite the same but but at the end of october i will have had a piece out about uh we're doing a billy wilder issue in october um, no, no, no. Ooh. Wait, what the hell am I talking about? We're doing a Billy Wilder issue in September, the month that we are in right now. <laughs> it's oh my just even cooler. Kicked, it's just even better. Off. So in September, <laughs> we are doing a Billy Wilder issue, and I have a piece about um, Sunset Boulevard, Eraserhead, and The Shining. Uh, and cool. The connections Cannot between wait those to three that. movies. Um did anyone end up uh, snatching Ace we in the Hole? We do have an Ace in the Hole piece coming out from Elizabeth Cantwell, one of our editors. Um, and yeah, we're covering all the all the sort of consensus classics and some of the weirder corners of the filmography. Um, and then I don't I don't know. I mean, I I might be doing something uh, at the the year end wrap up. Um, but I don't. I don't want to call my shot on that because I'm. I'm just really trying to get this book done. And and I don't know if you guys know this, but <laughs> writing a book is hard. Yeah, it's, it seems seems like it. Um, yeah. I wrote. I wrote uh, two drafts of two books uh, years ago, and uh, have not uh, have not gone back to do the sort of uh, finishing editing work because it's s- stealing my I will soul. Pit- yeah, I mean I. I wrote four chapters of a book in third grade called Transformation about a a guy that gets uh, transformed into a uh, puma. And let me tell you, that made me never want to go back and try to write a fifth chapter in that book. I'll pitch. Because I was out of ideas by chapter four. I remember chapter four was called Brainwashed with an exclamation point and uh, felt like he was kidnapped by by some scientists and it feels like I was already losing the thread of got transformed it into a It sounds good. <laughs> I'll pitch this to the listeners and I'll say if either I will have this in the January issue or you can just watch these movies and think about this topic yourselves. My idea for the year in review issue is something around the idea of like masculinity on film in in the year 2020 and, and the Ideas that I, I have are coalescing around the movie's deer skin about the demonic jacket that takes over a man's insecurities. Uh, Boys State, the documentary about uh, mock government and the Charlie Kaufman uh, movie. I'm thinking of ending things. I think all of those. I think you can throw Tall Tale. Tall in there. Tale, four perfect movies about the the sort of. <laughs> 
foibles of of masculine ego and you know self perception. You shouldn't spit in front of anyone if they don't want to. You should and respect. Definitely how they don't feel spit about on it. a guy's foot, or you're gonna be in big trouble. You're, you're gonna have to get your ass kicked by Pecos Bill. Um, well, thank you so much again, Ethan. Uh, Peter, we're moving on to like a month I've been excited about since last December. Um, when we came up with it or started talking about it while we were doing last December's theme. And occasionally on this show, there's an idea that just sounds so fun to do that I want to abandon what we're already doing to do it. And it's, it's tougher when it's like a December theme because I had to wait through uh, a global pandemic <laughs> Um, 2020 has been seven years a 2020 election all the other things you guys all know what happened you don't need to recap it here Uh, to get to something that like probably on his face might not scream like oh that's what they're doing but it's gonna be so much fun to talk about these fucking movies with Christmas aficionados like myself and you we're doing Cursed Christmas which is not a sequel to our 2017 theme or 2016 theme sorry jesus we've been on for a while um which was a horror christmas this is cursed christmas because we've done peter we've done fam uh, we've done classic christmas movies right it's a wonderful life all all the classics ethan was on for one of those home alone the agreed christmas canon uh we've done horror christmas which is a subgenre near and dear to peter and mine's heart and then last year we did hallmark christmas which is you know a a big part like if you go look christmas movies on any streaming platform you are going to have to wade through literally hundreds of hallmark lifetime christmas movies and and then we realized you know there's one kind of area of christmas movies that we haven't covered and what and that is cursed christmas which is all those other Christmas movies that are made to capitalize on the concept of Christmas that have no cultural cachet, uh, that are not remembered for being good, that no one watches except uh, confused parents that still go to like a family video to rent a Christmas movie. Uh, and we're going to do those movies that are not that are Christmas movies forgotten by history. Or at least ignored by history. Uh, And those movies are uh, the other Tim Allen Christmas movie that we have not covered, Christmas with the Cranks. We're doing Mixed Nuts, the Steve Martin and Adam Sandler R-rated Christmas movie they tried to make in the 90s. They did make Mixed Nuts. They didn't even try to make Mixed Nuts. They actually made it. They got it over the finish line. You're gonna <laughs> I know, it but it made, I think it made less than $2 million at the box office. So if, if a Mixed Nuts falls in a bowl and no one eats it, did it really? Yeah, so uh, In Search for Santa Paws, which is the somewhat sequel to Air Bud, that takes place in a universe where still talking dogs, no basketball, Santa Claus is real, and played by the other guy from Cheers that eventually shows up with Cliff and Norm at the end of the bar in the later the seasons. The movie is the 10th <laughs> film in the Airbud franchise and a prequel to Santa Buddies. I had no I'm just looking at Wikipedia. Yeah. I had no idea this franchise was so Byzantine. It is so busy. And I'll tell you what, I watched this with my kid a couple years ago, and 
it is truly one of the most amazing and perplexing movies I've ever seen, even knowing that it's the 10th sequel to Air Bud that takes place in a world where Santa's real. Uh and then um, at one point they throw the dog in a fire in a conveyor belt. It's insane. Anyway, and then we're wrapping it up with uh, kind of the most perplexing Christmas movie of all time that uh, has an aesthetic of punching you in the face repeatedly. Um, that was the number one movie at the box office in 2000. And that is Ron Howard's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And as a little surprise, since we're doing all that nonsense, uh, we're going to also cover the Dr. Seuss um, adaptation from the 60s of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which is kind of one of those Christmas perennials that we um, we skipped on our Christmas classic. So it's going to be a crazy month, Peter. I, I feel like in such a brain-melting year, it'll be nice to watch uh, movies that are as brain-melting as, as the ones we're doing. Uh, we are coming at it from that perspective. We are, again, to clarify, we are not becoming a bad movie podcast. But you know what? It's Christmas. Sometimes Pop-Pop gets a treat, as they say. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is what they say. They say Pop-Pop gets a treat. Uh, it's, and- also, it's also something that we won't be recording for a while because it's the only – we. I think our audience knows how much we've been pre-recording since we've been stuck at home. We're saving those recordings for closer to the Christmas season. So um, – uh, what's funny is that we're going to start into January and February recordings, but uh, yeah, we're excited to record those in a few months with you, Peter. Yeah. It's One week be, to the audience. It's going to be a blast. And uh, yeah, so uh, thank you very much again, Ethan, for, for coming on and taking this tall tale with us. Yeah, you know, it's not a tall tale. Having a good time with Ethan recording a podcast. Heck yeah. John Henry, yeah, when he was a baby. Sitting on his mammy's knee Picked up a hammer in his little right hand Said, hammer be the death of me, me, me Hammer be the death of me Some said he's born down in Texas Some said he's born up in Maine I just say he was a Louisiana man Leader of a steel driving chain game Leader of a Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on itunes i know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help so please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen and thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh, we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron <laughs>